This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Alana Stott. Now, Alana is an entrepreneur, an author of multiple books and the wife of one of my previous guests, British Special Forces soldier Dean Stott. So we discuss a host of topics from the horrendous burns that affected her physically and mentally as a child, her journey into banking, eating disorders, the Mrs. World competition, human trafficking, her books How to Ask for Money and She Who Dares, social business, finding your own self-worth and so much more. Now before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment Go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 800 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Alana Stott. Enjoy. Alana, I want to start by saying thank you so much for coming on the Behind the Shield podcast. Thank you so much for having me. And for everyone listening, I just tried the intro about four or five times and messed it up. And we were about three seconds <laughs> into the conversation. <laughs> so where on planet Earth are we finding you today? I am in California. 
although you wouldn't know it with the weather but yes apparently i'm in california now being a native uh british person myself i can tell that's not where you were born so let's start at the very beginning of your timeline so tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic what your parents did and how many siblings yeah, I was born in Aberdeen in Scotland. Um, I have, so my mom and dad, I guess they met in Aberdeen. My dad was in the military. Um, my mom was from Aberdeen. He was from Glasgow. Um, and I have two brothers. I have a younger brother who's got a different dad from me and an older brother. He actually lives in Australia and my younger brother lives in Qatar. So we're all pretty <laughs> spread out around the world now. Um, but yeah, I grew up for the first, I guess, 14 years in Aberdeen until my mum passed away. And then that was pretty much when I started the movement and, and travelled everywhere from then onwards. So you said about your dad being in the military, which branch was he in and was he exposed to combat during his service? Yeah, he was in the Argyles um, and he doesn't, I mean, it's actually really funny, he doesn't talk much about his service in full. Um, he was in... I know Hong Kong, but Northern Ireland was a, a huge part of what he done and his friends done. So, um, and then I think when my brother was born, it was when he decided to leave. And then from then on went into window cleaning. And then he was a bus driver for 35 years after that. So pretty varied. But yeah, he, he he's actually one of them that doesn't still doesn't talk very much about it. So with this lens that you have now being a military spouse and obviously watching Dean through you know, the SBS and then the contracting side, are there any aha moments when you look back on how your father was and some of that closeness that he had? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think back then, 70s, 80s, it still was the kind of shell shock, all this various different ways of describing what they went through with their mental health. But for him, it he still doesn't discuss mental health and no matter how much work myself and my husband have done in the mental health arena, it's still something that he struggles to fully talk about. Um, definitely the last few conversations we've had, he's opened up a little bit more and every time I speak to him, he opens up more and more, but his um, what they've done in, in Northern Ireland, um, and I guess there's a lot of American people who might not know the, the full story behind Northern Ireland, but the aftermath of what they experienced there, it goes through so many different things, like even down to football. I mean, you'll know that the the Catholic Protestant thing that comes into the game of football in, in the UK spills over, but that's all part of it. And, it, you know, even now if my kids are wearing the wrong colour of clothes, he'll say, get that get that off them, like they shouldn't be wearing that. Um, so it's never left him. And, and 100% he's never fully discussed it with me. He talked about some friends he lost, he spoke about some instances, but only really if I can get him into, and unfortunately when he's had a drink, that'll probably be when he'll open up the most. What is your perspective on that division? Something I've talked about a lot. I grew up in the West Country, so Southwest of England. And it never, I never ever felt like I was different to the Welsh, to the Scottish, to the Northern and the Irish, because we're two little pebbles in the middle of this massive ocean. So I always felt connected and I was, was just kind of blown away by this, oh, you must hate the, you know, other country because you're from England. And I'm like, well, we've got no, no barriers. You can walk into Scotland or into Wales and they look exactly the same as me and they speak almost the same as me. Now you've traveled so much. What's your perspective of some of that pigeonholing within our four countries back home? Yeah, I think um, 
you know, without going super massively deep in politics, but people can only be controlled with division. I think that they need that division. So with every war, with everything that goes on, there's always a division there. We want to make the good guys and the bad guys. You know, the kids do it, the goodies and the baddies, the cops and the robbers, cowboys and Indians, whatever it might be. Um, there's always a good guy and a bad guy, and that's how they can get people to believe in what they're doing, whether you're going to fight the Taliban, whether you're going to fight the IRA. One of them has to be bad and one of them has to be good. Um, But I think for me, I've always been the person that if you say look that way, I'm looking the other way. I want to see what, what else is actually happening. And you see it, whether it's Scotland and England, whether it's Catholic, Protestant, whether it's white, black, this division that's created is to is to make us dislike each other so that a war or whatever it might can happen for the benefit of someone else and that might be financially it might be power domination whatever it might be they're using people to fight to to create uh, creating that division for people to fight for them to profit in some other way and often when i go into the really deep discussion and it could be whether it's a pro vaccine an anti vaccine whether it's a black or white whether it's scotland england when we really discuss it you know nobody can give a really good answer to it and um something that i've seen with with the racial division for sure you know i seen the Scot- scotland and england when i was growing up everybody had to hate the scottish the, the english people you know there was a, a saying anybody but england that was who scotland would support in any sort of uh, sporting tournament, it's anybody but England. And then I come here and I see these these divides between um, races and cultures, etc. Um, it's always blown my mind since a little girl that somebody could dislike somebody because of a difference that they have. You know, I'm kind of I love everybody unless you're an asshole. You know, and then then I might not. Um, but I can see why it's it's done because it's, it's so much easier to control a population when. There is this division. Um, and I, I work in the area of human trafficking and, and, and slavery. And it was funny when the, the George Floyd thing happened and there was this huge movement and this huge, like, this is bad and this is going on in the world. And then people were tearing down statues and, and all these kind of things were happening. And I was like, there's 46 million people in slavery right now in the world. What are we doing to stop that? Stop tearing down statues and start working on this because the 10 million women and girls that are trapped in sexual slavery, they're from every different race, from every different culture, from every different background. It's nothing to do with the colour of your skin or where you're from. It's to do with the power, the profit, the domination, like everything else is. So, yeah, I could go on for a long time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it mirrors what I've talked about a lot recently. One of my guests made a really just, you know, astute observation. They were like, take yourself back to medieval England, Scotland, wherever, what when you're peering over the castle wall what do you want the people in the village below to be doing arguing with each other because then they're not looking at the castle going why the hell are they in there and we're out here and so i'm like god that is that is spot on you know whether it's the vaccine whether it's the race whatever it is when you reverse engineer so many of the horrible things that happened in history it wasn't an entire race that benefited or an entire country it was a few people benefiting oppressing a lot of people yeah so they need it so whether it's um yeah back in the Mesopotamia days there was the slaves building things we needed their control we've got um thousands of people being controlled by two or three people whether it's a prison population whatever it might be and if there's a 
danger that they might come together. I don't know if you remember the beginning of COVID, but people were coming together. People were were supporting each other and were, you know, helping each other out. Neighbors were helping, friends were helping. And then, I mean, I don't know, I want, don't want to say coincidentally, but this major thing happened with a man getting killed by a police officer and then it was division again. And then we were maybe starting to come, oh, we'll do vaccines again, we'll divide. We They can't allow us to come together and um, get on. Even And I don't mean we all have to agree. That's 100% against what, what I would agree. I have got friends who are super far left. I've got friends who are super far right. I've got friends all over the board. But we can disagree without hating each other and without fighting with each other. Um, you know, when I was a kid, I'd done debate club. I'd done chess club. I'd done, Dean calls me a geek, but... Debate club was fantastic for learning how to discuss with uh, something with people, maybe disagree with people, but still get on at the end. Um, that is the opposite of, I think, what people in power want. They need that division. Yeah, because I've talked about this quite a lot recently. Now the word debate means two people screaming at each other and expecting one to change the way they think. That to me is, is you know, we've, we've ruined the word debate. So now it's this kind of conversation. I mean, there's lots of guests on here that we agree with each other on a lot of things because that's what humans actually do. And then when you push the walls out, you're like, ah, I'm not I'm not super, you know, fundamental in the religion side. So, you know, let's come back into the middle. But you can find that commonality and explore your differences a little bit, take it, maybe it'll sow some seeds, but you're not going to suddenly change someone's mind in a one hour quote unquote debate. Yeah. And, and I think that there's a lot of closed minds now as well. I think social media has given us access to so much stuff, which is great, but people aren't willing to kind of, I'm right is such a big thing at the minute. Like everybody's right. Everybody is always right. And there's no open mind to, well, maybe, maybe, maybe that's not right. Maybe I could change my mind. I love, I love somebody who can change my mind on something. I love it. Get find a new perspective and learning a new a new way of of discussing something because you know nothing's hard and fast we can we can see different people's ways I mean even the things that I probably disagree with the most I can still understand where the person's got that idea from and where they've they've developed it well one of the most interesting stories in your biography and it's very very close to the beginning um is it kind of mirrors something that I'm actually writing my second book now and I'm trying to articulate this in this fictional story, it will be this time, but that we were all born as babies, these blank canvases. And unless there's some, you know, true deformity or, or massive chemical imbalance in our brain, we are really then subject to the environment. So you're growing up and navigating your childhood and as you, as you write about divorce and then obviously loss later, but you've got a friend, Wendy, so at the time you guys are this parallel path talk to me about her and you know and and how that path split because i think one of the biggest things that we're so bad at even in the first responder professions is oh that's a bum that's a hooker that's a crackhead and these were all toddlers ones so you've got a kind of interesting parallel road with her yeah we me and wendy grew up the same area um she had Wendy lived in probably one of the slightly nicer areas out of out of the area where we lived. And she had a mom and dad. Our dad was, I believe he was a postman. And I can't remember, her mom did work. I can't remember if it was a nurse or exactly what she'd done. Um, two, two other sisters, you know, she had a As we both grew up, we, we were best of friends. And she was 
um you know she was that girl that I was like she's absolutely beautiful you know the absolutely stunning tall she could run so fast her fitness was amazing she was just now I was burnt when I was a little girl so I was spent most of my kind of eight nine ten year old in a like a pressure garment so I was in this um with the smoke a little bit of weed we done a little bit of naughty stuff and one day this this girl approached us and she she had um some other drugs and she offered them and Wendy said yes and I said no and it was why I made that decision to say no I don't know other than um I worked I had a younger brother that I looked after like I had different responsibilities for some reason Wendy didn't feel like her life was um, I, I really don't know why she made that one little decision that she made that day. And from that point, it kind of spiraled out of control for her. Um, one of the girls who she knew she'd, um, she, I knew she was in, in Aberdeen at the time. There was a lot of heroin. Heroin was a huge, huge thing. So this girl had been taking it. And I, I believe that she'd wanted somebody else who would help her buy it. Just, just a partner to, to help and share the costs of the drugs. So she really wanted Wendy to be taking this and Wendy ended up taking it, I believe first started smoking it. And then I think by about 14, she was fully addicted to heroin. Um, And I tried a lot during my time after my mom passed away and I would do a lot of things to try and help her. I worked in a telesales organization. I managed to get her some work, but anybody who knows a drug addict, in that situation, she she would steal and she would do things that would, you know, it was out of her control. She was addicted to the the substance and she couldn't control it. Um, and unfortunately, it kind of just drifted from us. We, we stopped. We never stopped being friends, but I just had to protect myself and my family, I guess, a little bit more. Um, always think about her. I could tell you her birthday right now, 3rd of May. You know, every, I always think about her, but it was years and years later when I was working in the bank and... I remember serving this customer as a bank manager at this point and I was serving this customer and I noticed his address was next door to to where she lived and I said oh my my friend lives there my old friend and and when I said her name he was like oh the prostitute and you know my heart was just broken it really really broke and I think a couple of years later I saw her on the bus and all her teeth were missing she was with this much much older guy um and she didn't know who I was, like when we saw each other. I didn't speak to her. She 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 got off, but it was always looked back on that one little crossroads, that one little moment in my life that I could have said yes to. And that could have been me. So yeah, when you see these junkies on the street and everything else and call them all the names and call them scum and call them bums and everything. They were that cute little girl once. They were that little girl that used to love running and used to love and just made that one little decision that that changed everything. Well, you talked as well about being in the world of trafficking now, and we will definitely unpack that further because I've had multiple guests talking about that very subject. But when you look at a lot of these vulnerable women, a lot of times they are um, vulnerable because of some of the trauma of their past. And you write about the fact that she was preyed upon by a predator in a party when she was only 10 years old as well, which I'm sure contributed to some of her downward spiral. Yeah. Um, and it's funny, you see it and I hear it a lot. I, my social circle is a lot of, there's a lot of male groups and I've heard 
um excuse for the words that will come out with but you know slut whore tramp all these kind of things when you see a girl in a dance floor behaving in a way or a girl that's super drunk and people call these girls all sorts and you've seen them all over the internet at the minute with this new kind of masculine wave of people saying stay away from the hoe and all this kind of thing you know this was someone's little girl at one point and someone at some point has decided to hurt this this little girl you know for wendy she was 10 years old a guy decided and she know I remember when she told me that this had happened she didn't say that somebody had raped her she didn't say somebody had abused her she said she'd had sex with this guy she was 10 years old and he was I believe he was 18 um and she didn't see it as abuse I mean we all know that was abuse we all know she was abused but for that girl she didn't see that we as we were growing up we wanted to be like older girls and you say and do things that um you haven't got the mental capacity to understand that it's wrong. And maybe it could be a blood relative. It could be a friend of the family. Somebody could take advantage of you without you even knowing they're doing it, which is often how things like grooming and all these other things happen. Um, so to put labels onto these girls for whatever reason. And I think when when abuse happens, whether it's um, you know child abuse, rape, all these different things that might happen. There's so many different paths that a person can take. And often I think you find that you want this victim. You know, we, when we rescue a girl from trafficking, we want the movie that, you know, she runs into your arms and holds you and thank you for saving me and you're my hero. That's not how it works. You know, when when you're broken, you become hardened and you're this, this tough, tough girl um, or boy. And you don't want those hugs. The last thing you actually want is a hug. You want you want to be tough and you need to preserve yourself. Um, so you can become quite vicious and you can become quite mean, but it's all this huge protection shield that you've just built over the years to stop anybody hurting you. One of the most profound statements I've heard someone say, and it was a while ago now, was instead of asking what's wrong with you, you ask what happened to you. Yeah. Hundred percent, and that's exactly what goes through my head when I when I see girls. I'm, I'm thinking, what's what's gone on here? Because I've been that girl. I've been that girl who's put that barrier around me and um, not let anybody in and pretended everything's okay and go out and do whatever you want to do and then cry yourself to sleep every night. And but nobody sees that side. Nobody sees the pain. Nobody sees the hurting. Um, and to to judge somebody by a behavior like that to me is super naive um this this girl's been hurt and she she needs some help and i think that to put that box as i was saying about what a victim looks like or what a survivor looks like there isn't one size fits all there's a lot of different ways someone can respond and there's so many people that will be like well if she was really raped this wouldn't have happened or she wouldn't do this or she wouldn't behave like that till you've been through it you can't judge and you're you, you don't get a comment so Absolutely. Well, you talk and we'll get into this too about, you know, ultimately competing in Mrs. World and then you are very transparent about eating disorders. When you look back now at some of the trauma, you lost your mother and obviously the family dynamic changed and I want to hear more about the burns in a second too. But when you look back now, what impact did that have on your body dysmorphia, your self-esteem and, and maybe some of the eating disorders that were attached to that? Yeah, I... It was funny when I first started doing the, uh, and this is like honest truth, when we first started doing the mental health campaign, 
Um, so basically, Dean had decided he was. We decided together he would cycle from Argentina to Alaska. We were going to run this mental health campaign to raise money for for Harry's Heads Together charity, and we would we ended up working with eleven different uh, mental health charities throughout different fields. And I would honestly say, if you'd asked me at the very beginning of this, if you got any issues with mental health, I'd have been like, no, I'm fine. I'm completely fine. Nothing's wrong with me at all. Um, and it's funny, I know you've had Kelsey on the show and she she calls me like a walking PTSD. <laughs> I'm like, I'm, whoa, whoa, whoa. But it's, it's, PTSD is trauma. You know, it's trauma that we've all experienced. And then one after another, after another builds it up into different, into different ways that we'll, we'll show it out. But um, the, the eating disorder is just part of, of all of that. And I believe that, yes, there is this, this, fat issue I guess that you could say is it because you think you're fat I mean if that was the case it wouldn't be it wouldn't be the, the mental issue that it is because we've had different stages of life and um I think the the, the time I feel the healthiest and happiest is when I'm pregnant so that's the you know the the, the biggest you need be but um the sexual abuse side of it yeah that completely contributes to every type of disorder you can get in and yet eating disorders is one of it because you hate your body from the inside out every part of you you dislike um so you do whatever you can to to change it or make it different or even hurt it or cause it damage and there's so much that that goes through there and that I guess that goes through everything that 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 we've done but the the the, the traumas that something can cause when you're super young I guess can be worked on throughout your whole life, but I don't think it ever truly disappears. Um, but I think it's definitely a work work in progress. And funny enough, when I'm at, when I'm at my happiest and when we're at our happiest as a family, those things do disappear. But then as soon as let's just say we have some trolls, or let's just say we have people attacking us on, on various things, my eating disorders will come back in full. But we're aware that that's going to happen. So we we're ready for it. So I think even now with, when Dean sees something going on externally, he'll look out for signs of what might be going on with me and vice versa with Dean of any of his things. I had one of the guests, I think it was, it was uh, Johan Hari who wrote Chasing the Scream and um, uh, Lost Connections. And he was talking about this study and I'll just give you the cliff notes. So the study was a IV only weight loss experiment. And they had this one lady who was very, very big and, uh, you know, she lost all this weight, but then fell off the wagon. She was their kind of rock star of this program and then went back to eating KFC and put on the weight. And someone, obviously smarter than most of them, had stopped and said, okay, we need to find out why. So they actually sat her down and, and started doing a kind of a psychological forensic interview. And they said, well, when did you start eating? And she said, oh, it was when I was eight. And I said, was there anything significant that happened when you were eight and said yeah it's when my grandfather started sexually abusing me so no one in the shaming fitness industry stops to think maybe that person doesn't want to be slim and attractive because last time they were they were preyed upon so even with you know we think of eating disorders as anorexia and bulimia but i think the obesity epidemic that we're seeing in the u.s and is in through my eyes getting worse and worse in the uk as well we're missing that entire mental health component of even the obesity epidemic. Yeah, I met a girl on on the plane. Actually, when I was on my way to Mrs. Rob, I met this girl on the plane and she was in AI and she 
all that I mean that is all completely over my head anything techie I can barely turn this computer on but um she was a super intelligent woman super logical thinker and on one of her trips now I believe it was Japan I can't remember exactly where she said but she was she was sexually assaulted in a, in a park and she showed me pictures of herself at the time and I mean she was still a, a beautiful woman but she cut all her hair off she put a lot of weight on but she she explained it to me somebody as intelligent as her was able to articulate in this logical way that yeah I, I was attacked because I was a beautiful woman walking through a park so the easiest way to fix that is not be a beautiful woman and don't walk through a park and it was so simple to her to to change it in that way um and I think that was that was really scary for me that because I've seen it I've seen so many people do it I've seen the haircuts I've seen the weight gains I've seen the the clothes I've seen the different way that people deal with it but to hear it so logically from someone like her um w- was quite scary that that we feel we've got to do that to to stop ourselves being being hurt or attacked well speaking of aesthetics before we kind of walk through out of your childhood that we spent a little time in now um talk to me about how you got burned and then what that was like for you as a, as a little girl I mean what I had grommets um in my ears, the little tubes that they put in. And I remember sitting on the side of a swimming pool for months at a time watching other kids have fun while I just sweated on the side. <laughs> so I can't imagine being in, you know, in the, the restrictive body garment that you had to while other kids were playing. So what was that whole story for you? Yeah, so my um I was my mom and dad had just got divorced. My mom was seeing somebody else. We had what we call a car boot sale, so I think like garage sale type of thing here. Um and we'd come home and my mom had said make tea my granda who was a super craftsman he he'd made this this stool um and the 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 breakfast bar where we'd make tea I was just eight so it was a bit a bit high for me so I took the stool to stand on I filled up this big urn of of boiling water and when I went to to pour it into the cups I, I went along the 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 stool and it just tipped over so the urn just came down on top of me so I had on, I guess, my pajamas at the time and my mum's partner like ripped off my clothes, which unfortunately, because the the clothes had stuck to me by this point, it also ripped off all all the skin. Um, Got into hospital and it was kind of a bit erratic and everyone was was everywhere. And then I got put into this um, like incubation unit, which I ended up, that was my home for the next few months, really, um, because you're highly infectious. So the burns were pretty much from from here all of well I'm here you're on audio but from from my neck kind of down um to my torso and then just splashes throughout the rest of the body the major area that they wanted to graft was around my arm and my chest because that what there was the risk of diffusion of my arm there so they ended up taking graft from my leg and putting that in onto my chest and my arm unfortunately they used what they called a pattern graph at the time. So it was you had the options of flat graphs and pattern graphs. The pattern graphs were meant to take better, but the the surgeon said that he'd kind of made a mistake on what he'd done. Um, so it made the the scarring a, a bit worse. So I have almost like crisscrossing scarring. Um, and then you're put into once your dressings are done. So this is maybe six months later. You're going through some of the different processes. You do dressings and. And then you're put into this garment that's basically just going to hold you in. It's a, a compression garment for a year. So at this point, I was eight, nine. And 
school would by the time I got back I missed about probably about six to nine months of school but I'd done a lot of it in the hospital actually you know funny enough the hospital was one of the most fun times of of my life you were just in there and I ended up working with the nurses and helping them make beds and then there was a, a girl there who was in a coma the whole time I was there so I would sit and read to her um and then yeah so once I got out I wasn't I mean I probably could have done physical activities with, with gym and P, but it was you know I, I, what was it 30 minutes they used to get to be able to to do the class so I would just be sat to the side while while the the teacher would do everyone one else and then so that went on for probably about a year so a year of kind of sitting on the side but to add to that my grandparents in the way of trying to show me affection and love would feed me so I would be in this compression garment and I would be eating lots of candy and um that contributed to the the, the first bit of weight gain and then by the time I get to nine ten, that's when the the I guess the fat shaming would have would have started for me. Like I was now a bit overweight. I was now badly burnt. Um, so then I I think after I got out of the garment and my my scars had all healed, there was the first trip to the swimming pool for me. Um, and I was super excited because I loved swimming. When I was before all this happened, we swam three or four times a week. It was it was our our thing. And then so I was excited to get back into the pool. And as soon as I came up to the side, the lifeguard blew his whistle, which obviously everybody turns around and looks. I um, obviously looked up at him and he was just looking at me in absolute disgust. And he called me over. He says, you can't go in there. You will scare. There's young kids in here, you know, because I get it. They weren't very sightly. They were they were they were, I guess, scary to him. But he wouldn't let me in the pool with with my burns. So. I went back to the changing room and he says, you can go and put a T-shirt on or something, then you could go in. So now I'm kind of stood there in this T-shirt about to get into the pool and people are looking at me because I've got a T-shirt on getting into the pool. And I just said, you know, I'm just not going to do it. So ran back to the changing room, obviously upset, and then never went went back in again for, for a very long time. Um, and the pool was my my happy place. And then And then there would be, you know, general insults from, you know, other kids, various things there was I won't say a lot of the names they used to call but really by this point I guess funny enough that didn't bother me the, the fat insults would get me more I guess than the than the burns ones and then uh, but I still had my little brother to look after I mean, he he was born while I, my mum got pregnant while I was going through the burns so he was born just after and then he kind of gave me that new new little lease but growing up um after my mom had passed away after the uh sexual abuse and after um everything else that had gone on the burns kind of took a back seat for me it was almost like it was a really good way of weaning people out if you know if you were going to be mean about the burns I mean I've had partners criticize them without without knowing that I was there and I just it never, it honestly, would, wouldn't affect me. People have made comments, even women. I've had people stare at them and make all sorts of comments, but it was something that, look, scars are part of me. This is who I am, and this is from, so from a super young age, I I was pretty confident about the burns after everything else, but I've seen so many people with scars, and I think when I got into the Mrs. World contest, um that was when I started doing a little bit of modeling and things. And I remember being in this 
this room with this girl and this this young girl was about to take the stage and her mom was putting this makeup on this scar on her. I said, what are you doing? And she's, I've got to cover this scar up. She can't go on the stage. Just this little scar that was on her body. I was like, why are you teaching her that this is something she needs to cover up and hide? Like she's 12 years old, like let her show off. And she's like, people, people will make fun of her. People I was like, are you ridiculous? People that make fun of a scar, there are more problems with them than what there is with, with your daughter. Don't teach her to cover these things up. Um, yeah, so that's where I am with them now. I've got a friend, Shay Eskew, and he was really badly burned. There was a, a swarm of bees, and he was a little boy, and one of the neighbor girls decided the best way was to throw petrol on the, the swarm. Well, uh, there was an ignition source. He was engulfed in flames, and um, I mean, really, really badly from, burned from head to toe. And uh, the kids, again, as, as I'm sure with you, there are kids that are very kind and empathetic, and then there are kids that are cruel. And uh, one of them used to call him Freddy Krueger. And so rather than get all upset, he just turned to him and say, you're right, I'll see you in your dreams. And <laughs> so he kind of flipped it on him. But it's it's such a sad reflection because if you know what, and you, you know, I'm preaching to the choir, when you hear what a burn survivor endures, the debrading and, you know, one of the most painful, agonizing things that anyone can go through, the actual human reaction should be empathy, like, oh my God, you know, I know what you went through based on the, the, the scars that I'm seeing, the wounds that you've got. And it's heartbreaking that these people that have been through so much trauma already then endure some of this, you know, bullying after they've gone through it. Yeah. And I think it's just a, people like to see something and be there. I mean, I have to say there's not, when we're talking about majority, the majority are empathetic and kind and um I me personally I like people to ask rather than stare I do like it if, if somebody asks I have had people stare for a really long time and I'll eventually just kind of turn my head around and be like is there something you want to want to ask um but for for me it's you know still ongoing I think my last operation was just a couple of years ago um and I'm always you know my my arm constantly fuses to my side so I'm always going to have to get that released and as I have children, because it's my breasts that are scarred. As I have children, I need to always be be doing different things with breastfeeding and stuff. So, um, I'm probably always going to have to get to get something done with it. But yeah, like it, one thing that when I came here, um, and realized that obviously you get the treatment after burns, but the post care that's the most important thing. You know, I could not imagine if I didn't have the NHS in the UK and the post care that I got which is, you know, stopping the skin from tightening, all the different things that you've got to go through and all the operations that I've had, that isn't covered here unless you've got the insurance. So if a little kid is burnt and doesn't have this stuff, they could end up with this tightening pain for the rest of their life and never be able to get the the um, the care that they need. And that really scared me. So there's a lot of associations here that, that, that deal with that and do, but it is charitable basis that they have to do it, which is really sad. One of my friends who actually uh, helped with Summer Shea's surgery more recently, um, he was a Navy SEAL, transitioned out. He himself was blown out of a Humvee but didn't have burns specifically. He ends up meeting um, an Army soldier, U.S. Army soldier, who was very, very badly burned. And in the conversation, the soldier said, yeah, this is the best the VA said they can do. And he was like, well, that's bullshit. So he started a nonprofit called Sons of the Flag, which connects some of the best plastic surgeons on the on the planet to warfighters, first responders, etc. Um, and when you hear, you know, the so so 
often it's soldiers, it's you know first responders, it's people like that that are starting these nonprofits because there are these gaps. Now, I'm not going to load the question. My opinion of the NHS is it's demonized in so many places. It's called socialized medicine, like it's you know created by Stalin. But what I saw with my own eyes in the UK with my my family, for example, who paid Bupa for a long time until they priced them out, and then it was the NHS that really gave them care, was phenomenal. And I've always said to people, when you walk through the door of a hospital in the US, the first thing they ask for is your social security number. When you walk through a hospital in England, they're concerned about you and what's going on. So it obviously there's pros and cons. There are places that are great and places that are not so great, and they've cut and cut and cut. What? But I'm I'm a huge fan when fully fan funded and properly staffed of that system. Without loading it, that's James Gearing's opinion. What is your perception, especially with you having received NHS care, of that now that you live in the U.S. and you get to see the system here? Well. Now that we're living here, um, this I, I used to be a bank manager when I was in the UK, and I was in charge of three separate banks. Um, over £8 million was coming through my banks, and in a day I had 30, 40 staff under my wing. I pay more for insurance here than I was paid as a bank manager in the UK. So that gives you an idea of how much you need to be even earning just to get full quality of care here. Um, in, the, in the UK, that was free. Yeah, I ended up with private medical in the end, but when I was a lot older, when I was growing up, if we didn't have the NHS, the life for me would definitely not be the same. You know, my my mum worked in hotels. My dad was a bus driver. We couldn't have afforded the, the private insurance that we have here. So for the very, very basic, healthcare, that wouldn't have been enough for me for the operations and the things that I've had over the years. I would have you're given treatment to, to be looked after here, but um I, I couldn't even count. I probably were in probably 14 surgeries since since I was little. Like most of them wouldn't be covered under um the emergency healthcare here. So I love the NHS like well that's all I'm really going to say it was it was it really did blow my mind coming here to see that yeah exactly the same thing the first time I took my kid to the hospital what's your insurance number what's your car this can you just look after my 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 little baby here I need they need help first no no we need all this first um and it's like well what if I don't have it what are you what's going to what's going to happen here um I speak to some people that I know that don't have insurance and I'm like you must be literally running the gauntlet every day like what if something goes wrong and then the fact that these debts transfer between families and people could literally be wiped out you know you could build up a home a, a car all these things and it could all go with one heart surgery or you know one one issue that might go go wrong and I think that it has worked in the UK and they've managed to build the system and you know we've still got a really good system going on there. I don't know how it can't work elsewhere. Um and then some of the greatest countries, I believe things like Sweden, Norway, um Finland, you know, for, for mental health, I think that's all free there as well. We and they've got the lowest rates of suicides and various things there. So the government-funded systems work if they're done right. Exactly. And I think that's the thing is, as we have seen, I think COVID was a great 
um, sounding board for if someone was actually worthy of their salary as a leader or not. Some countries were amazing and some countries were clearly not. Um, yeah. Ours and our previous ones, for example. But um, but yeah, the system itself, when funded, when supported, and that means actually providing the equipment, the the staffing, not just standing outside and clapping at five o'clock, when it's actually done properly, you know, to not have to think about that. And I was a firefighter paramedic, so I was the one wheeling these people in. So I've seen hospitals, you know, more so than the average person. And thinking about when my grandfather got cancer at 99 years old and I watched him get better care under the NHS after being dropped by Bupa because they priced him out when it was actually time for them to use the benefits they paid for for a long time, the, the private and it was the NHS that got the home visits, the hospice care, the the visits to my grandmother for weeks after he passed that you would never see here. And even the side-by-side -side comparison, if you look at it, it's cheaper in every single area. I think cancer treatment is the only thing. But again, I'm kind of torn on the cancer world anyway. You know, I think that, you know, we just to, to nuke someone with chemicals or radiation and then fingers crossed that they survive it. I don't know if that's the best science personally, but every other thing, like the number of beds, number of doctors, all those are actually better in the UK um, for cheaper than it is for your premiums and co-pays here. Yeah, I mean, without a doubt. My, I mean, my mum, she was... She was 37 when she passed away. And again, yeah, she was she was loaded with chemo. And I think that was a big, a big reason that, that but you know, we didn't know any different then to to do anything different. But um when I speak to people, some people here that maybe don't have the insurance or have high co-pays, um, and the the first thing they're thinking about is how much is it going to cost, which one can I afford, which one can't I afford? And I think, you know, this country is run by pharmaceuticals I and mean, I don't think there's many that would that would dispute that whereas I, I don't think I've ever been um subject to the amount of pharmaceuticals when I came here you know in the UK it's almost what what is it that you need and what can we do for for the the situation because nobody's profiting from it um first the first kind of physical we done when we were here they wanted to put the kids on meds they wanted me on meds they wanted to eat and I was like whoa 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 I mean I went the other day literally I, I had um, a trapped nerve in my back and it's been I haven't been able to get to sleep with it and I went to go and see if we could get it looked at and see what it is and I left with a prescription for antidepressants and I kind of looked at Dean I was like how did that just happen you know because he gave me the prescription I looked at it googled it and I was like that's an antidepressant for for a pain in my back that I just wanted to see where the nerve was and see if there's something we could do physical therapy or something to get it fixed and walking out with antidepressants it was really worrying for me that that's the way that they, they want to go it's kind of profit above people I guess there is an amazing movement practice called foundation training it's a guy um, Eric Goodman Dr. Eric Goodman and he was a uh, personal trainer that then went to chiropractic school very very long story very short jacked his back up when he was doing all his lifting before was in chiropractic school was going to have surgery on his back had this epiphany like wait a second how can i be a chiropractor with a big scar down my back so he ended up diving into all the stuff he learned in the physical um, uh, training side then all the chiropractic and yoga and pilates and created the system and it just looks kind of like funny yoga in a way and you only do it for about 10-15 minutes a day but I tore my back as a firefighter lifting a patient and 
was exactly like you was thrown you know meds and all this stuff and i was like nah this is a trauma this is like someone crashed my car you know i don't need to paint the car i need to fix the car um so i took a it took a few months but i mean i've got not only heal, but it was better than it had ever been before. So I can highly recommend if you're having issues with, with backs, and so many of us do exactly what we're doing now, which is sitting, which creates that imbalance. And then you add your burns, which I'm sure are compounding as well. Um, that is an amazing movement practice. And they have free videos on YouTube, and then they have a streaming thing that you can subscribe to if you if you buy in. Oh, yeah, that would definitely be interesting. Yeah, I mean, yeah, my um, my trainer back in Aberdeen, she would always laugh at my complete misalignment of my body. Like everything is just because this hand, this arm, um, sorry, my left arm was, I guess, for maybe 10 years down by my side. I couldn't lift it up until we had to retrain it and be able to um, loosen off that arm. And so, so kind of everything's supported by my right. So even if, you know, if I'm bench pressing or anything like that, you can see the right kind of goes way up before anything else happens and she would she would just laugh at me for it but no she was great she would try her best to get aligned but it's still a lot of work needing done there for sure all right so let's let's walk you out of uh, childhood now then so you talked about banking that you were in for quite a while when you were in those school age was that what you were dreaming of getting into or was there another career aspiration prior um so I guess school age, I started off as a vet and then I had a dream about a spider coming into my surgery and then that just changed everything. <laughs> um, and then I wanted to be a lawyer. That was really my, I guess, my dream as a kid. Any injustice that i seen, I was like, I need to fix this. I want to fix it. Um, so being a lawyer was, was what I wanted to do. And then accountancy was, I ended up taking maths and accounting and economics in school and I, I loved it it was just something I found really easy to do that I could flow through I had a really good accountant teacher which definitely helped um so finances and money was something that I just naturally enjoyed doing and loved doing so my mom would say like this is accountancy is what you want to do I ended up winning the Barclays Bank Accounting Prize um when I was I think about 13 or 14 um and then that was almost what was expected I was going to do um when mum passed away university and all that idea went went out the window that was wasn't going to happen so it was straight into just working life um and I'd been working since I was 11 you know so we, we all worked in our house and I'd done I guess various different things in tele sales and door-to-door sales I was working door-to-door door sales for a few years and in Scotland that's not a lot of fun so I decided to um, apply for another job and then it was when I got into debt collecting that I got more into financing um, and the debt collecting side of it was because I was used to doing door-to-door that the debt collecting was about going around people's houses and collecting their money um, which was mainly a guy's job I guess at the time because the approach was more of a forceful approach to, to make people Hey, but my mom was somebody who who would get those people around her house. So I wanted to do it a different way. That wasn't what the what I wanted to do. So I would sit down with people and do budget plans and work out their finances and see what we could do and how we could make them more able to pay. So that was how I would approach it. And I ended up becoming one of the, the top debt collectors in the country because of <clears throat> because of that. And I never got into a fight. Not that I would want to get into a fight, but that was how I done it. And then because of that, I got offered this um, chance to 
run a, a branch and then this job came up in an actual bank and I thought well I'll, I'll give it a go and actually when I applied it had the qualifications were you know degree and experience and everything else and I thought well I don't have any of that but I'm just going to apply anyway and um, went for the interview and just got on very 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 well with the regional manager and that was it um so no it definitely wasn't what I necessarily wanted to do it was just something that I was really good at I worked after school in London for just a few months but it ended up being let's say ended up it was it was presented as like a pyramid scheme so the the whole thing was they went to gyms hair salons paintball places and said okay if we could get someone to walk through your door what would you offer them for free and then they would make this kind of little gift card package thing we would sell it you know for 50 pounds and then you know obviously the top person would get 10 and it would work its way down but that was all about cold calling. You go to industrial centers, you go on the streets, and I'd be dressed up in such a douchey thing with a little polar neck and my freaking effeminate hairstyle. Hey, can I ask you about your hair? But it made you have to talk to people that didn't want to talk to you and try and be charismatic. And I didn't do it for two. I was actually like, you know, I was good at it, but I hated it. I hated it. But when I look back, I'm like, wow, that probably served me as a firefighter, as a paramedic, as a podcast host, when you look back now, the debt collecting and the door-to-door sales, how did that factor into things that you did later in life? You know, it's really funny. If you asked me to do it now, I'd be like, no, no, I'm not. But, you know, if I needed to, if I had to do it, I would do it. And it started out in one, one of the products I, I sold windows and doors kitchens bathrooms everything but one of the products was that where you it was a card and the person would get like two for one at a restaurant or a gym pass or and and it worked the so we would travel around the country doing it the first card you sold of the day would cover your accommodation and then every other one you would get I think we sold it for 20 and you got 10 and the boss got 10 so and it was purely commission only so if you didn't make any sales you didn't make any money it was as simple as that so you had this, you had to first of all get that first sale if you wanted somewhere to sleep at night, get the second sale for something to eat that night, and then everything else was was your profit. So it was a definitely where you picked up the buck stops here because nobody else was knocking that doors for me. I had to do it. But secondly, where you learned how to speak to people and interact with people and find out what it was, how people ticked, how you could get that sale because nobody wanted to buy that card and nobody wanted you knocking on your door at eight o'clock at night when they've just sat down for Coronation Street or whatever and their their dinner's ready and then there's you kind of annoying them on the doorstep. So um it yeah, so much resilience, so much confidence, I guess, in speaking to people, finding out about people, learning what you want in life, I guess, as well, because that was once I left that job, I didn't want to go back to that job. Well, I heard you talking on the uh, Mind and Muscle podcast, and I need to get the host on as well, because I think he was not only Special Operations Soldier, but I think he was a firefighter as well, if I've got that right, in New Zealand. Yeah. So, yeah. so, but you t- you just mentioned that you were a banker during the 2008 crash. So what did you see through a British bank eyes on the British contributing factors to those and then the aftermath? Yeah, so I went into... so. Finance was something I was in in various different ways. I remember working, um, so there was banks, which are your traditional banks, which you've got, you know, your Chase, um, Wells Fargo, et cetera here. And then you've got your more finance companies, which are like 
what would be BlackRock, HFC here. They're, I'm not sure exactly what they've got here. So I worked in the finance companies at first. And when I was working there, there were zero regulations. So there was things like PPI, which was insurance. There was various different things that you could sell as add-ons. And you could sell them however you wanted. The, the things that they, I wish I still had the training manuals and what they would tell you to do but it was really really scary like trying if somebody wanted this loan and you were literally doubling that loan with all the things that you were adding on to there it really wasn't ethical and how how they got away with it for so long but then they didn't and then there was the the crash um but I'd moved into banking literally the year of the crash so I didn't know that side of things, which was like savings, investments, um, bonds, ISAs, stocks, all these things were kind of new to me when I went into there. And it must have been, maybe it was like literally a matter of months I started there and the crash happened. So I've got people trying to close down their accounts, trying to cash in on what they've got, trying to, you know, people losing literally hundreds of thousands of pounds overnight. People crying in the bank, like everything was going on. And I'm there going, I haven't got a clue what these things are, never mind what, what's happening to them. So you had to learn. Um, I mean, the one thing that I hated doing was was repossessions when I was in the debt collecting industry. Well, here now I'm having to repossess everything, homes, cars, everything are getting taken off of people. Um, and you're seeing like the worst and the people that, you know, your normal bus drivers, firefighters, nine to five people were the ones who were, I guess, least affected in the way that they weren't they weren't losing what the other people were losing, but you were still seeing the effects because it trickled down to them in some way or another. If the, if the rich are suffering, you're going to be suffering as well somehow. So um, I think Northern Rock was the first bank that crashed. And when that went, everybody wanted to clear their banks out. And again, it was all on panic and fear and everybody didn't know what was going to go on and people were just terrified that they were going to lose everything. I think the regulators at the time were covering like 8,000. It wasn't a lot. It's a lot more now. I'm not exactly sure what the figures are, but your your money is a bit more protected now. But still, you know, if you've got a million in the bank and that turns into 100,000 overnight, it's it's a scary situation. So um, you're dealing with people in like, full crisis it was just full crisis mode that people were seeing they were losing everything and a lot of it were people that had worked for this their whole entire life to build up this nest egg that now just disappeared I think that Icelandic bat crashed and that was disaster for people that had that that was it was it was awful but you were you were in full learning mode that didn't stop for a few years so what about um, meeting Dean yeah you're working in the bank and when, when did that kind of cross over and then talk to me about going into what is now a not just a military family but obviously a special forces military family yeah so dean was i was in aberdeen i was working in this bank and dean was in aberdeen for a training course and there was the bank holiday so in in the uk we have eight bank holidays a year so sunday evening for people that work in a bank sunday evening on a bank holiday weekend is 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 a night out so this was the august bank holiday me and my friends were all on a night out. We'd walked into this bar, um, and it was it was actually a bar that a church that had been converted into a bar. This is what Aberdeen is. So there was a kind of the bar was right down the middle of the old church, and we were all down one side of the bar. And me and my friends decided we were going to leave. We were leaving out the back door, which was where all the other clubs were. 
And I remember walking out the door thinking, just wait a second. Like, we need to go around the other side of the bar. My friends were like, why? We're ready to leave. Let's go. And I was like, no, I just think we need to go around the other side of the bar. And it was literally just a stop dead on my feet moment where I just said, no, other side. So we walked back round, and there was this group of guys just just stood there. And I remember seeing Dean and I thought, no, let's just stay for one one more drink. (laughs) We stayed for another drink. And then I think Dean, a few of the guys came up and we kind of just ignored them, you know, and then Dean came up. And again, I I done my I think Dean called me the ice queen. That was that was his nickname for me for a while. And I just ignored him, pretended I didn't see him. And then, yeah, that was it. So he was there for the rest of that week. And we we saw each other every day and then it was he was going back so pool where dean lived was one end of the uk and i was in aberdeen the other end of the uk so it was on the last night we were playing pool um and dean said if i when i got to keep his watch so it was his sbs watch which is you know one of 250 in the world and um if he if he won I would come and see him again. So I was pretty good at pool and it was, I think it got to, to like, it got down in the wire and then, and then uh, he won. I won't say whether I let him win or not to this day, that's not been confirmed, but um, <laughs> we, yeah, we started seeing each other more. We would literally just travel the length of the country to see each other every as often as we could, but Dean was on the pager. So Dean was special forces. So he wasn't allowed to be outside of a certain ring of of uh, of camp so it was mainly me coming to to see him um and then literally i guess six months later was when he had his <laughs> injury so he was in oman training and he jumped out of he was doing a, a parachute jump his leg got caught in the rigging line and his acl his mcl everything got torn and, and that was kind of the end of his military career and then um yeah he was in a pretty bad shape for a while till we got him home and then it was the kind of long road ahead for for fixing him so we had this amazing whirlwind of six months of just you know complete like adventure and what we were going to do um and it all kind of came crashing down that day literally so the transition is something that's notorious the more i've you know more people i speak to the more it's definitely a very very prevalent element to a struggle for someone in uniform you know you're you're in this tribe you're in this group i'm assuming the the guys he was with in that pub are probably you know teammates that he would die for you have that sense of purpose you know you you have that identity as a soldier a special force a soldier you know a firefighter and then especially injury one day you don't you know and now you're on the outside what did you witness as far as his struggle with transition through your eyes yeah so so the guy that i met i mean i was 26, 27, I met Dean and I'd been pretty much single for, for all the reasons we've, we've already spoke about, but I wasn't, I wanted to be by myself at this point and I wanted to work and I wanted, I had, I was buying properties, I was doing my thing. So somebody who was going to turn my head away from being single had to be pretty special. And he was that, he was, you know, nothing was impossible. Everything was an adventure. Everything was fun. Everything was, and then pretty much from the moment this happened um he was on heavy medication for the pain to start with so it was you know you you know people are like when they're they're med up he was very down he was very zombie like um and then once he realized that his career was over this darkness almost came over him um and the kind of 
the fun, love and the happiness all kind of just disappeared overnight, really. But I I knew this guy. So I was like, this can come back. This is cool. We can work on this. And then I, I guess one day um, he was in the kitchen and he was making himself some breakfast. And I just heard this like roar and it was just this horrible sound. And I came running in thinking, I don't know if he'd stabbed himself or something. I don't know what had happened. And he was just furious. He was red. His eyes were red, everything. And all I could see was this egg on the floor. There was an egg just broken on the floor. And I was like, what's wrong? And he was just, you know, I'm not a man. I can't even make breakfast. I'm like, I'm worthless. I can't do it. And it was just this really just broken, this broken egg was this broken man, really. It was horrible to see. And then unfortunately, he lost one of his friends on the tour that he he wasn't able to go on because of the injury. So that, again, just just changed everything for him. And, and it was just a lot of anger, a lot of uh, sadness, just really struggled to get him to just be enthusiastic about anything. So I really had the option at this point, well, is this the life that I want? And it was like, well, yeah, I've chose this guy. Like, I've, I, I'm in love with this guy. I'm going to do what I can to get him back to that 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 happiness that he he once he once was so that was when we decided look let's get into private security let's go into this this world but the transition period in the the military they offer you all these courses and I I went along with Dean to sit in on, on one of them in particular and they done this CV writing um how to do a resume and how to do a job interview and then they had all these guys came in that were super successful in in their businesses afterwards but. To me, I was like, right, if he goes into private security, for example, which is the the road that a lot of them go down, you're more than likely going to be self-employed. Right now you're in the military where you've had this paycheck coming in and going from self uh, from employed to self-employed has got so many changes. For example, you can't get a mortgage. You can't get um, like finances going to go out the window. Do you have debts to pay off? There's There's all these things that weren't explained to them. And then just the basics. Like these guys, like for example, Dean had never paid a bill. He'd he'd lived in military quarters most of his life. <clears throat> he didn't know that you had to pay for water. He didn't know you had to pay for electricity, gas. There was all these different things. What is what is tax? What is council tax? He didn't know any of these things. So we had to um it, it blew my mind that these weren't being taught as the basics for the transition process. And then that you then had to learn how to go from working with so Dean had been with his his father in the military all his life and then he's been in the military all his life he's only ever known the military world well transitioning from military to civilian life is a, is a huge deal um so none of that was taught so I, I i i sat in on all these classes and i was like no we've got so much more work to do to to get them to um become less i guess institutionalized it's a bit like coming out of a prison you've been in this institution for so long and now we have to teach you a whole new way of life so I knew that the work was going to be cut out there. Um, and that was really, I had to make that decision that the kind of entrepreneurial side of me that I built, I was probably going to have to put a lot of this now into Dean because it wouldn't be good enough just for me to do well. He has to be able to do it and he has to do it on his own. So I have to get him functioning, but I have to make him believe that he's, the one doing it so there was a, a lot of decision making I had to do and then we found out I was pregnant with our first daughter as well so we then had that complete transition there from from my life as well so there was a lot going on in that little time period so again I heard this on on the uh 
Mind the Muscle podcast, you talked about the story of Haiti so and how that led you into the kind of executive protection side so walk me through that does and then and then if you want from that segue onto the your introduction to the world of human trafficking and slavery yeah so um when i will will if we went back to when i was so my assault happened when i was 17 i was living down in england and it was two men who had um had raped me and I'd gone to to court uh, there was nine other people had come forward during <laughs> during my process of <clears throat> what had happened to them with these these other two guys and all the way up to the court case these nine people all dropped out there was a lot of intimidation and things going on during it um but again I was a, bullying doesn't really work for me so it was I I went through with the case um, got to court and I remember the victim support team was this tiny little unit where you got put into a room and then I went to the the stand and was you know interrogated by their um their counsel while while they were kind of sat just across from me. I remember the process, I remember the the degradation, the being spoke about, you know, your sex life, who you are, what you've done, what you've done in the past, all these things that go through. And I remember the rape itself wasn't nice like we, we won't lie about that but the process after was a thousand times harder I remember when I went to the, the police station and I had to get um examined and it was a guy that came in to do the examination but it was middle of the night he'd obviously been woken up and he wasn't happy about it. you could tell he wasn't happy about it in this white piece of papers put on the ground and he's like stand on there take your clothes off you know get on the bed open your legs all these kind of things it was for a 17-year-old who'd already just been through that, it was a horrible process. And I remember that whole process after was a thousand times worse than the actual incident itself. Um, so after the court case was finished, it was it was kind of firmly in my mind now to not allow other people to go through that and to, to see what I can do to help. Um, so it was always part of helping abuse survivors, but I was learning more and more about trafficking, but this is kind of back in the early 2000s. So I was meeting different people that were working in the arenas of abuse. And I guess at the time, I didn't know fully what, what trafficking was and how people were bought and sold and, and slavery and things. So always, always learning, but I was meeting a lot of people. So 2010, the, the Haiti disaster hit. So um, for context, whenever there's a, a large disaster of any kind, that's when the criminals will move in. So for for this instance, it was it was traffickers. So a lot of kids were being orphaned. Makeshift makeshift orphanages are are set up, and when the kids are put there, the traffickers move in to take them out. So a friend of mine who ran Stop the Traffic, she said she was going out out to to stop these organisations and stop these things happening. But the minute she was and now she was going, there was a price tag put in her head and it was like $5. That was the price for her, for MD to take her out. So she said, can we get protection? And then when I, I contacted the people I know, even the, the cheapest people were still like £300 a day, which for a charitable organisation was still a lot of money to be able to get. And I said to Dean, we, we have to be able to do this. Like we have to, so obviously Dean could, but uh, legally we both needed to get qualified so that was when we decided we would go into close protection together um, Dean was obviously already fully trained knew what he was doing but we went found the best course out there which was called Anubis run by a guy called Ginge Johnson 
Uh, this was a four-week residential course where you learned everything about the world of protection. Um, but Ginge was, so Ginge changed the, uh, trained the Mujahideen back in the late 70s. He was just like a legend of a guy, like literally is just a legend of a guy. And he would pull me aside and just show me different ways to do it from what he was teaching the guys. Like it was, he was, he was such a good person still in our life now. So he's, he's a cool guy. And we both learned close protection, but that was when I found out I was pregnant with, with Molly. Um, so yeah, bodyguards and pregnant bodyguards are not, are not a big demand. So, um, but that was cool because there was still, there's still a lot of behind the scenes work needs to be done in the protective world. So Dean was out front doing all the work and I was behind doing it and ended up working out really, really well. So I want to get into that that world because there's a, there's a lot of myths, you know, the, the kind of white rape van that pulls up and throws a bag over someone's head and flings them in is not usually how people are groomed and, and found. But before we do, one area that I, that I missed, you talked about the weight gain. Now you have a sexual assault at, or rape, let's use the right word, we have a rape at 17 years old. At what point did you overcome your initial weight gain and, and kind of refine your physicality and was that prior to the rape and if so did it have an impact again after I think it was always up and down so I think from from my mum passing away when my mum died um my weight plummeted at that point and I think that was when the the eating disorder really took over I think there was a point where I was having like half an apple and I remember the end of a, a cornetto cone you know the little chocolate bit at the end I would have that I would just pull that bit off and have an apple and that was my my daily diet pretty much um and actually that went through till I was arrested for shoplifting so I it was it was the crazy time I now understand that shoplifting is part of the grieving process it's this kind of trying to fill something that isn't there but you know when I got picked up I had a lot of stuff on me that wouldn't even have fit me that I never would have worn that wasn't anything of my it was just it was just stuff and actually the police were really really good to me I can't like they were super understanding super supportive but I remember being in the cell uh, the reason for that discussion was um money was tight I had my younger brother and I was working in this um, telesales department and this woman had said to me, you know, I was really struggling because I had to get Adam to um, nursery by like 6 a.m. so that I could go to school so then that I could go to work. So it was a, it was really long days I, I was doing. And she said, look, I can give you this stuff. It'll help you keep you awake, um, which I, I said yes to at the time. It was it was amphetamine. Um, but that was a system with a weight loss. So I w wasn't eating, I wasn't sleeping. I was then taking this. And when I got picked up by the police, I had this in my bag. Um, the police made made the great decision that like this was all part of mum's mom's death and that they weren't going to press any charges. They weren't going to bring any charges to me. But I remember sitting in the cell and I was it was on this little bench and almost like my little body was 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 half filling half the bench because I was that small but if you'd asked me at the time I'd have, I'd have said I was huge but um coming out of the the police station that day and seeing my dad and my brother and how upset they were um I, I think that gave me my little light switch moment and I was like no I need to to get this under control I need to stop making myself sick I need to do all these things to so that was my first time that I I tried to address it by myself and then um they 
the rape brought it back and there's so there would be ups and downs throughout throughout the years um meeting Dean I think and learning a bit more about fitness definitely brought me into a different realm because up till that point I I everything had been done through the eating this point was now where Dean was in obviously he was super fit he was teaching me a bit more about how to keep fit but now he was in, when he got injured, I had to learn more about how to now keep him fit, keep myself fit. So then that's when I started studying um, nutrition and physical and, and everything about keeping the body healthy. And once I started, once I switched myself on to that, it, it did change me. So you end up in the world of pageants, the Mrs. World you know, environment. So walk me through that. You've had this up and down. You know, you've had this, these, these burns. You've had bouts of feeling like you're obese, bouts of being very, very anorexic. The pros and cons of your journey through that particular um, environment that you found yourself. Yeah, so I was, Dean was doing his challenge um, on the bike ride at this point. As I said, I put everything into making his life better and making everything work for him. And I had really forgotten about myself. But the life that we had was was good and because we were helping people and we were doing the things that I'd always set out to do. We had um, two kids now at this point and amazing kids. And the, mo- the most important thing for me was that Molly wasn't going to suffer any of those things that I'd, I'd gone through. So her self-confidence was really important to me. Um, so I, the one thing I wanted to see was that, that mom was successful too. Like I was always supporting Dean and I always had other things in the background, but I wanted to do something that, that was different. So anything that was intellectual was cool for me. I could go in and do that. No problem. But to do with things like beauty or modeling or anything like that was so unbelievably alien to me that. I would even consider it. So that was almost why I decided to do it because it was out of my comfort zone and it was it was setting myself a new challenge. So I'd seen this um, advert for Mrs. World, which was, um, it was about, it didn't say it was, a, it was a beauty pageant. It said it was about being a wife, being a mother, being a businesswoman, women empowerment, all these kind of things that were being spoke about at the time. So I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to give this a go. It sounds like something that I could do um, I want to challenge myself. I want to take myself out of that comfort zone and 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 go for it. So I still had all these things from the past, sure, of course, but you have to you have to challenge yourself. You can't live in your comfort zone at all. So that was it when I decided, yeah, I'll do it. Um, applied for so first of all it would be Mrs Aberdeen, then I won that, then went on to Mrs Scotland and won that, and then it was Mrs World in in Vegas. So um, I quickly learned that I it was super out of my depth but that was cool because I was meeting people that were um in in all so much of what I done so the the kind of philanthropy world and what I done with Dean and everything else was completely alien to them and they were like wow this is amazing and I would look at them like tall and beautiful and poised and just looking fantastic and I would just be you know girl crushing and then they they tell me now that it was it was it was likewise but um, the first thing I got told was that I couldn't walk. So I had to learn how to walk, which I thought I was doing okay for my life, but clearly not. <laughs> um, but no, I, I joke, but it really actually did give me some benefits. There's a lot of it that I didn't like, but the people that I met, um, you know, Mrs. England, who I, I've stayed friends with, she 
taught me how to walk, taught me how to hold my posture, how to um, carry myself better, how to look after my my appearance a bit better. Um, you know, I've always been, you know, no makeup and just put on what's comfortable. She was like, you know, maybe you don't want to be so comfortable, put something else on. So she was cool like that. And then I kind of helped her with her her own mental health and her own struggles. So we worked together in that. Well, firstly, the the film Miss Congeniality springs to mind when I think of someone who wasn't in that realm that was found there. Um, you talked about there were some areas you don't like, not demonizing it, but what were those, the, the other side, the things that you didn't, you know, sit comfortably with you? I think so. When I got to Vegas, that was when Mrs. World uh, competition was on. There was 40 women there from all over the world. And I would spend a lot of time with them and speaking to them and learning about them. And they were they were phenomenal. Mrs. Belarus had businesses. She worked for the government. She she done NGOs. She was fantastic woman, but she was vocal. You know, she would speak out about what what she liked or didn't like. Um, And I guess day one breakfast, Mrs. Ukraine came in, um, super tall, beautiful girl. She had a, a a little skirt on and a little top on. Walks into the the breakfast hall, and the and the lady running the the who was almost like her escort. She pulled her aside and she stood her next to us all, and she and she basically berated us in front of her that her skirt was too short, that her cleavage was showing too much, like in front of all these girls. And I was like looking around like what the hell is anybody going to say anything here this girl's just being shamed in front of us all um, and she's a beautiful girl um so I got up and, and went to ask her if she was okay and we, we had a little chat um and then we went to Benny Hanna's restaurant in the the Westgate Casino and we were all having dinner and the guy who kind of run the organization came in and he was whistling at the staff clicking his fingers at staff just just being really arrogant as far as I was concerned um and as he'd walked in he whistled on one of the the female waitresses and just kind of clicked at her and I I, you know I shook my head and and he he turned around he says does anybody find this offensive uh raise your hand if you find it offensive so my hand is like way in the air and as I kind of look around not one other hand is up and I was just like are you telling me none of you find this offensive and then as the, the evening kind of progressed they were all like I can't believe you put your hand up. We agree with you, but we couldn't put our hand up. I was like, what? You're meant to be a representation for your country and you're saying that you can't speak up when somebody's being an asshole. Um, and I think that was when I realised that it wasn't about what I thought it would be about. I mean, these women were amazing, but they were after this this prize. Um, and I think when the, the, the 12 that were stood there at the end, 12 fantastic women, but when I was in backstage with the, the, the other people, I was like, all of you are fantastic. All of you are amazing. But you're, the ones who were there were definitely the more vocal ones, were definitely the ones who had more to say. And then, yeah, you, you would spend maybe 20 minutes on stage in a swimsuit, but my interview was four minutes. We would talk about me for four minutes and what I'd done, but um, or my cause, which was the main thing that I wanted to get out, was speaking about the human trafficking. And um, we had four minutes to discuss that. But you've got me on stage for twenty minutes in a, a swimsuit. I don't know how that tells you more about me than than that. So I tried it. I done it. Kind of ticked that box, but it wasn't for me. Well, speaking of your passion and the human trafficking, I want to get into the you know the immense uh problem that we have in that area some of the myths around it too but just before we do again in that podcast you touch on 
being asked to do a TED talk. And I think what was very interesting is beautiful thing about a conversation like this is you say exactly what you want to say. There's no intermediary. There's no no filter. Talk to me about that experience and then, you know, what was told to you versus what you were trying to put out to the world. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. That's probably one of my, I don't, I've always been, I think from from when I was part of that that rape case, um, people were always trying to get me to say things or do things or, or mess up in some sort. When you're speaking the truth, you can't really mess up. I had my truth, that was it. That was all I could say. So I've always been a kind of no filter, just say it exactly how it is person so yeah you're right there um I've been asked to do this TED talk and um it was about human trafficking and and modern slavery um which is one of the same um so my talk basically speaks about something we've already just spoke about where I speak about you know the the passion of the, the the George Floyd and the BLM movement um but what we want to do is bring that into slavery as a whole um and not just talk about it based on race but talk about it based on you know everything that actually goes on with it so we talk a lot about um things that we can do differently things that 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 every single person could do you know things like amazon and and various different things that fund slavery i'm not saying amazon fully funds slavery but things like fast fashion and 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 these type of thing are just encouraging that instant gratification so I speak about that a lot in the talk and I, I presented it to them. You know, I was signed, I was ready to go, but she came to me and she said, look, I need you to take out the word slavery out of your talk. And I said, well, I can't do a talk on human trafficking and take out the word slavery. And she says, it's too emotive. It'll, you know, upset too many people. We need to keep it a bit um, less controversial. And you can't talk about George Floyd and you can't talk about Amazon because they might get upset and you can't, and, they, and we were, we were coming down to the point that she just wanted to erase the talk. And I said, you know what, you could do this talk then. What is the point of me doing this talk? Because it's not changing anything. It's fluffy. It's not making any difference. I'm not going to stand up and do this talk. And she said, Alana, you're signed up for the talk. It's a TED talk. You you know, this is what people want to do. And I said, yeah, I want to do a TED talk to, to make a difference. I don't want to do it just so I'm stood on the TED stage. That's not why I'm doing it. Um, and she said, well, you know, if you don't change it, we can as well. I'm, I'm out then unfortunately I'm not going to do it just for just to be on the stage so I cancelled off on that and um very similar I've been asked to do talks where I've been asked to do talks on how to ask for money without telling people how to ask for money because people have been afraid that their employees might want a pay rise you know so <laughs> <laughs> I'm uh yeah it's quite interesting how um People want the story, but they don't want the real story. Well, it's such a common theme. And this is what I was, I've been so enamored by the trust that people have given me to come on this podcast. And you've, you know, you've told some things that when we were younger, you know, a lot of people would just not want to hear. Just, just I don't want to hear blah, 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 sexual assault or whatever it is. And now you have these people that come on and talk about this, you know, which is what we need. But then there's this counter cancel culture and I'll give you a perfect example. You do a post about suicide on Instagram, it'll get kind of muted because, oh, suicide's a bad word. Yeah, it's a fucking bad word. People are killing themselves. This is something we need to talk about. School shootings. I mean, these areas and it's just, it's dampered and it's disnified and, you know, it's fine to talk about, you know, transgender and Bud Light and Black Mermaids, but we talk about real issues that are actually affecting a lot of people and like you said there's a lot of people that don't want to hear it because it makes them uncomfortable well that is the point 
it is yeah, uncomfortable. Yeah. And we can still, you know, again, we can still have that that different sort of opinion, but life isn't all fluffy and life isn't all wonderful and there is bad stuff that happens. And I think that for me, it was, I I never spoke about my, um this the sexual assault side of it because I wasn't ever comfortable speaking about it. And and, and in all honesty, the, the, the guys that done it, you know, I'm a close protection officer. I fight human trafficking. I do all these things, but you are still, you do still have those, those people that can affect your brain. So, um, the first time I ever spoke about it was when JK Rowling was being cancelled. You know, she was she was um being attacked for her views on on being a woman. And they I think it was the Sun newspaper in the UK contacted her ex-partner who had abused her to to get like an exclusive. And you know, it was all over the front page about how I think I think it was something like I enjoyed hitting her or something. There was something ridiculous on the front page. Um, like re-victimizing her all over again and that was the first time I ever spoke about what happened because um, you know rape and abuse it it sticks with you forever and that person no matter how much you've made yourself stronger and more powerful and help people there's always that that little bit that's there that little that little girl that's still that still hurts a little bit so I wanted to be a voice for the people that that are, are going through it and maybe think that how they're dealing with it is wrong or how their um how their reaction or something that they've done if they've gone out and they've they've hooked up with someone and someone says well how can you be a victim because you've just slept around or you've just gone and done this or you've done that like there's no one size fits all for how you deal with abuse and trauma and I think that the more people that speak about how they've dealt with it the more people can see what that's exactly what I done that's what I done there like how can I how can I um, be judged because it's just a reaction to what's happened? I had a guy on the show, Jeff Thompson, and he, when I was young, that he had some books. I think Watch Your Back was one of them. And he was a bouncer, and it was kind of like a how to fight for men kind of book. You know, you ask them a question, and when they're thinking about it, you pop them in the face. And there was a lot of good stuff. He was a martial artist, but that's why I used to read him because I was a very meek, vulnerable, smaller statured man in a small west country town where people like to stick glasses in each other's faces so anyway move you know on i become a firefighter i create this podcast come out the other end and someone mentions his name and i'm like i forgot about that bloke so i end up getting jeff on the show he i'm thinking we're going to talk about fighting he ends up being uber transparent about the sexual assault at the hands of his martial arts instructor when he was a young boy and the way that he processed it was a completely distorted version of his own sexuality. And he was very graphic about the masturbation and all these crazy things that, that he was doing. But it illustrates what you're talking about. You were sexually abused. I'm not you, but you know, someone can be sexually abused and it can make them promiscuous. But because they've never dealt with that assault and their, their vulnerability and sexuality has been distorted. So when we look at these addicts and all these other kind of groups that we've talked about and including the promiscuous person or whatever it is, and I would argue probably some of the transgender population. There are some people that there's no doubt and they were born a different sex and it's something that we've probably seen throughout time. But I think there's a smaller group that are confused and have gender dysmorphia 
that, you know, probably if you reverse engineered earlier life, you'd see some nucleus of that as well. So I think this is the problem. Then you stand, Mr. Judgy, looking at a person who's putting a needle in their arm or is being promiscuous, and you're like, oh, you know, they're a piece of shit and I'm amazing, rather than what happened to you. Yeah, and I think that the um, the culture of of what's going on right now with, you know, let's even if we look at the trans community, um, yeah, hundred percent. There's there's lots of evidence that people can be born into the wrong body. But like with every other subject that's going on right now, I know plenty of people who have had abortions. I do not know one single person who's had an abortion and celebrated it and enjoyed having it, and it's been a great thing. And I'm going to go out and do it again because it was so much fun. Like that's the part that gets that gets to me. I know people that have transitioned um, that you know suffered went through all the things went and really they don't they're not out there marching they're not out there doing that they this was a part of them that they needed to change and that they really believed that I mean, you've got people full-on dressing up and making a mockery of that the people that have actually been through it don't agree with that from from anybody that i know that's actually been through it and then what we've done now is rather than addressing these issues of you know if you were they say breaking the change, you know, often that when a kid grows up and sees his dad being violent, he might become violent himself and then it carries on throughout the generations. Um, if you've got somebody who's been abused as a kid and then you're allowing them to, not not allowing them, everybody needs their, their outlets, but there's this um, acceptance of dressing up and behaving and doing things that are pushing boundaries like using female toilets and breastfeeding babies and all sorts of things that that are now being like almost celebrated we're not addressing that initial issue and these troubles are just going to keep going on and getting worse and worse and worse um and I think it's it's such a disservice to that that person that's been through it and whoever might come out the other end and I think that the minute you criticize or say anything you're a transphobe or you're a right winger or you're you're whatever other names might be I think i I'd said something about um, Riley Gaines getting abused one on, on a talk that she'd done with actual men physically hitting her. Um, and I literally got posts about being a racist right-wing bigot for, for saying that men shouldn't hit women. That was the very thing that I said was men shouldn't hit women and I was a racist right-wing bigot. Um, obviously, that doesn't affect me in the slightest because it's ridiculous because we've now got this social media who can just say and do whatever they want to do but um there is a lot of people who are standing up and saying no this is this is wrong and that the mental health side of this needs to be addressed immediately well i'll give you a perfect analogy um more from the kind of adhd autism spectrum i worked in summer camps in new york and the first time i went which is 94 um I remember one of my friends was was the nurse. I mean, I became friends when we were there. And one of the first evenings when the kids actually got there, there was a line around the corner of the infirmary. And so I'm like, you know, I'm kind of came from, a, I was a lifeguard. And I'm like, oh God, is there an emergency? And she goes, no, 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 they're just lining up for Ritalin. And I'm like, what is Ritalin? And they said, oh, it's for ADD. And I was like, well, what is ADD? <laughs> I'm not familiar with these acronyms. And she explained and I'd never seen it back home. You know, there weren't, it wasn't really a thing. And what I realized is, as you go through now is that, for example, you know, there are some people who truly have like 
hyperactivity. We all know them. They are bouncing off the walls. And there are absolutely some, you know, as we're very, very apparent, a lot of people are truly on the autism spectrum. But then you have other groups that, again, whether it was unaddressed childhood trauma, whether it's the chemicals in the food, inactivity, overstimulation through devices that are just being dismissed as, oh, yeah, I'm on the spectrum or, yeah, I've got ADHD. Uh, When was the last time you went for a run? When was the last time you got wet and muddy? You know, is it truly that or is it, you know, something else? So to me, it's advocating for the trans community when you address as many people as you can that maybe are just kind of confused. And the same with the autism. There are a lot of people that actually need the research, the support tools in the autistic community that are being diluted because of all these other people that really, if you take a step back, are actually some preventable elements that will pull that child off that spectrum again if they're given the tools to actually process their trauma and or their energy. Yeah, and yeah, I mean, the, the mental health side of that, like I was I was watching an interview with um, Bedros Kalian the other day and he was, um, he was on a show that I'm filming now too, but we were chatting about that. He'd come, you know, from the Soviet Union, a war-torn country, came across, as soon as he got here, it was ADHD, OCD, everything, here's a load of drugs, take it. Um, you know, his parents are obviously like, well, we'll do what's right for the kid. I mean, for me, it's like, if somebody tried to say that to my kid, I'd be like, okay, brilliant, he's got this advancement, let's see what we can do with it. But again, um, the, the first thing I noticed when I got here was the the candy, like, my my kids don't don't touch it you know sometimes when we go back to the uk we'll 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 have some skittles but there's they're not touching the ones here um but let them have all the skittles and then give them the ritalin and the adderall and whatever else we can we can give them how about we just don't give them that shit in the first place and then and they won't be affected by it but um you know then there's i mean i i can't even believe the amount of surgeries that are going on like i've had a lot of surgeries in my my life um, but doing them out of choice to, ch- you know, for example, when I was going through the um, the worst stages of my eating disorders and things, if you said to me, well, we could just cut out all the fat and we could just do all this and you don't have any fat, but let's just get you in the surgery anyway and cut it all out. I'd have been like, yeah, let's do it, you know, rather than, but you're not going to do that because that's a mental health issue that I'm going through. There's nothing wrong with my body. Um I'm going through something that needs to be addressed with mental health services and not a surgeon. And we're we're literally cutting kids up here. That's it's, it blows my mind. Now, as I say, I know people who have transitioned, and one thousand percent, it's been the right decision. But it was a long decision. It was a process from very very early childhood when all the way all the way through till I think probably like thirty before the the decision was 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 fully changed I guess but it isn't something that should be happening at 13 14 15 16 years old for sure as your body's still developing well I think the other side of the argument as well is and I agree with this when they say the toxic masculinity I my definition of toxic masculinity is the way that myself and Dean and some of our generation were raised which is you got to have muscles don't cry suck it up that's toxic masculinity that's caused so many suicides and overdoses in men But I agree completely that when you have pigeonholed, well, a boy should be into this and a girl should be into this, there is some confusion. Like I had a, I had a doll when I was young. I watched my son, who's now almost 16 with abs, mad about girls, track athlete, go through some, you know, 
really leaning towards what one would classify as the the feminine stuff. And I was like, I literally was going to be one of those dads that was like, well, if you want to wear a dress to Halloween, I'll wear a dress too. I'm good with it, you know? And then he swung back the other way because who says that a dress is girly? Who says that, you know, this is is for boys? So I think that's another compounding element is we've got to allow the kids to explore everything. Their sexuality will actually come when the hormones are starting to fully develop and they're truly realizing, yes, consistently, when I look in the mirror, I feel like a her or a him or I'm attracted to this sex or that sex. But leading up to that, there's this undulation of emotions and exploration and hormones. And if we're too premature, that, as I think we know, most sound normal people are saying, is like, look, no one's saying that ultimately you won't end up being this gender that you're your appearance denies at the moment but wait till you mature into an adult and then you can make that decision and hopefully by that point you will truly know yeah and i think if you're if you're um some of some some of these ones where you're kind of starting off well i'm not going to put a gender on my child when they're born like do, have they got a penis it's a boy right we can decide anything else later on but get boy on that birth certificate um, because to start confusion at such a young age, as you're growing up, there's enough stuff you're trying to work out. Like I've got a, an eight months old, old next door who's trying to work out how to crawl. You know, if I start saying, well, you know, don't need to crawl, you need to walk on your head, like let them work out the process and then we can deal with them. I mean, Tommy, my son, he is, you know, he is Dean's son through and through, but growing up at three, he loved my heels. He loved putting lipstick on. He loved putting jewelry on. Um, but what that's turned out to be is he's really, really attentive. I'm always saying to Dean that he needs to learn from him because if I'm wearing a nice dress, Tommy will be like, mom, you look amazing today. Mom, oh, look at those nails. I love that color. He does all that, but you couldn't get a more boy's boy. But never would Dean say, you know, don't speak about nails. Don't speak about hair. Don't speak about makeup. You're being, you know, he's, it's just do what you want to do. Be who you want to be because actually he's grown into be this amazing man who, holds the doors open for, you know, my husband, Dean works away a lot. So Tommy's now sort of becoming the man of the house. Just naturally, he doesn't go to bed until he sees that all the doors are locked and everything's shut down downstairs. And he's, he's just coming up to seven now, but nothing's been forced on our kids. They can do whatever they want. They can play with whatever they want to play with and choose whatever colours they want. It's all down to them. Um, but we give them direction and definitely we can tell them that they're a girl and a boy um but i think that the 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 traumas of the parents are now being passed on to the kids and and the kids are now becoming confused and i can't think of any world where it's all right to put kids through surgery that isn't necessary yeah well i mean if there's going to be a place it's the united states you know where boobs and lips and you know, everything else that like you said, the the gastric bypass. I mean, we're so used to cutting the human body up for aesthetics in this country that we've set ourselves up for this next step. Whereas I think, you know, you look at some other countries that maybe people are happier with the way they look, because as you said, like Scandinavia is a perfect example. It's a healthier nation mentally. It's a healthier nation physically, community wise. There isn't the need to you know, to add all these things on so that you look a certain way from the outside in. And I'm sure it'd be interesting actually to get a Scandinavian guest to see, you know, how they, what their philosophy is when someone is truly transgender and, you know, what does that look like? And when do, you know, do they have the tools to transition? And if so, when is it? Because I think over and over again, that particular part of the world 
always seems to be like true north on so many areas. Yeah, and I, I guess maybe it's from the. I mean, we won't go into like full history, but they've they've you know their their descendants and they've got that bloodline, haven't they, of of the Vikings and the warriors and things. I think a lot of um, I would never never want to criticize America. I'm living here now, but they they haven't got that strong bloodline and what was here they've kind of got rid of um but you know if, if, you, if you looked at probably the native communities and things there would be a lot less of this i don't know i'm guessing there's there's less of this situations there but i think i think for for me about while i was growing up i had enough to worry about i you know if you if you miss pronoun me or if you call me elena through this whole program i wouldn't care because I've got plenty of other stuff that is way more important to worry about than whether you're calling me the wrong name or not. I mean, Elena Scott is pretty much a common one for me. Um, and before Stott, I was killing. So that got mispronounced all the time. Um, it really, really, really isn't that important to me. Yeah, I get called Greering all the time. And, you know, they'll they'll put one E and all kinds of stuff. But again, I was called the wrong name through a video conference the other day not not an interview but uh a, a chat with some new people and the whole entire way i think he called me nick and i was like okay I'm, i guess i'm nick for this next 30 minutes so i called dean neil for the first few days that i knew him so um <laughs> i'm glad he corrected me or would still be there well i want to get to your new book but just as a segue as i i kind of said we we're about to talk to this and then we talked for an hour about something completely different so <laughs> talk to me about um as you mentioned, the magnitude of human trafficking and slavery that still exists in 2023. And then what are some of the myths that people believe in? Because I had uh, Tamia Naj, who was from Hungary, and she was uh, trafficked in Canada for a while. I've had some of the members of Deliver Fund on the show. So we got some pretty interesting perspectives. But through your eyes, talk to me about those those elements. Yeah, I think um, the first thing I always get, I mean, I've had I've spoke to doctors who say, yeah, but that doesn't happen here or that doesn't happen in this country or not in California, maybe, or these kind of things. So first of all, I guess more slaves in the world today than any other time in history. I think that's a, a really important um, thing to understand that it hasn't gone away and it hasn't got any better. And we've actually just found different ways to do it. Um, I think the best way that I describe it is that um, trafficking of humans has just become a different way for dealers to make money drugs were were always have always been a good a, a good profit for them but if you're found with a couple of kilos worth of heroin in your car um you're you're going to jail like there's probably not much doubt that you're going to be going to jail if you're found with a girl in your car um it's probably very unlikely you're going to jail where she's probably worth a lot more to that dealer than the the heroin so or or cocaine or whatever it might be um so she's going to be an e easier commodity to to trade um and trade is just about supply and demand if we went on to the economics of it it's just a supply and demand issue so wherever there's a higher demand that's where the supply is going to be needed and that's where it's going to be brought to so to say that it happens in these kind of third world countries and and etc that's not where the demand is the demand is here um, and this is where the 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 numbers, Canada, America, these are where the numbers are happening. Um, 
and it can happen to anybody. I think, yeah, the, the myth of the bundled into the back of the car, the, the, the kidnap, the Liam Neeson coming in to save the day thing is, isn't how it works. Um, yeah, we do. There is people that are taken. There is people that are uh, forced into the industry in that way. But it, sometimes it just happens in a very subtle way that, you know, again, back to the, what we were saying about the mental health crisis is, there's a lot of very, very, very vulnerable kids now uh, without guidance, without knowing where to go. Um, and they turn to things like the internet. The internet's everyone's friend. I always say that we used to hang about in playgrounds. You know, kids hang about in the internet now. That is their playground. And you can't stop them. You can't stop them from going there. It's accessible to them. So there's people out there that will contact through the internet. And if you, there isn't a strong um, contact system within the household this is where they're going to form their bonds. And then it can be creating friendships that that turn. And I, I think you've probably spoke to many guests that have spoke to you about grooming, but grooming is a really slow process that once you're in it, um, you you rarely realise what's going on until it's very, very much too late. And then we've become the hardened hardened person that we spoke about earlier. So um, for me, I'm, I'm sure you've spoke to so many people about the outcome of, of that situation but I really want to get to the, the preventative side of it so if we can give our kids a stronger support system and a stronger mental health and stronger uh, powers to see what's going on to see what might be happening that's where I believe that we can we can stop it now yeah there's there's a whole array of kids that aren't going to have that support system but then a, then we've got teachers, then we've got support counselors, then we've got friends, you know, even friends, if you can if you can get your friends to to safety as well, then then we've got that. But the more people that we can teach about how it happens in the first place, I think the more we can get to the preventative side. But I know a lot of people that work in the preventative rather than the the rescue side. Um because the rescue side gets so much more highlights, you know, because you get to see that that savior moment. Um the people that work in the preventative side, you don't get to see their results. So that's the people that I, I do a lot of work with just now. But um, if I was to just take my own personal circumstance, I've got a 12-year-old daughter, she's coming up to 12. Um, and I've had three instances where people have tried to contact her on on the internet. Now, I am somebody who works in human trafficking. I work in security. I, um, I, I, I know my shit is what I would say there and my kid's still vulnerable. So if my kid's vulnerable, then then other kids are definitely vulnerable. Um, how she deals with it, if somebody tries to contact her, she comes straight to me very calmly. My household is really calm about it. Thank you, sweetheart, for coming to me. I'll deal with this now. And that's that's basically it. There's been instances where she has replied. There was one where she did reply. Again, I didn't lose, lose it with her. We spoke about it. She understood she shouldn't have replied. She never make her nervous to come to you that's the one thing that and it's something that with with Dean even with Dean doing that I've had to really control him because he just wants to lose his shit he wants to be like go after this guy find him and take him off the face of the earth but we'll deal with that you know let her come to us be calm thank her for coming to us and then we can deal with it um but yeah three times she's had and she's fully private protected we've done everything that we need to do but they'll still be able to approach and I think as I spoke um, with, with Damien about it, that I don't then go and ban her from going to the playground. I don't ban her from the internet because it's, it's, it's not her that needs to be banned, it's him. So she still needs to be able to go. I just need armour with the tools and how to go there safely. 
Well, I think from a first responders lens, sadly, I had these conversations a little bit too late because a lot. I think the first time I had a um, a human trafficking conversation, I was either just about to transition out or I was out. But about God, ten years ago now, probably, I remember going to a motel in Orlando. Um, this woman was extremely sick. It was a combination of um, ketoacidosis, so her her blood sugar was like just said high on the monitor, but then also a cocktail of of drugs, including opiates. So ironically, medically, it was fascinating because her the breathing rate from her diabetes actually kept her awake through the opiate overdose. So gave her a bunch of drugs. She. Basically, everything came out of every orifice. It wasn't a very fun ambulance ride, um, but we got her to the hospital safely. But when I look back now, it was classic. It was drug paraphernalia. I don't remember if there were condoms specifically, but there was one man, basically four of these women in this one motel room. And now with this information that I have, and I'd never got any education on this at all as a first responder, I look back now and go, I would have done the same thing, but I also then would have told the police you know, radio my dispatch, say, hey, send someone to this this address because I just picked this one girl up from an overdose and then there's three still in there and I guarantee you that was a trafficking. Because I think what people don't understand is trafficking is also the world of prostitution. So, you know, when we think of trafficking, it's all around us and especially if an event like the Super Bowl or something like that comes to town, then you're flooded even more. So I hope that the first responders that listen to this can put that in their toolbox that I never had when I was faced with something that was so obvious now, but I was oblivious to at the time, on top of sleep deprivation, of course. Yeah, and it's interesting that I, I spoke to a group of guys, a group of special forces guys, and I said, look, have you ever um, been with a prostitute? And they kind of all looked all shy and, looked and turned away, and I was like, okay, don't need to answer. I said, have you ever... Um, have you ever trafficked? Have you ever slept with somebody that's trafficked? Have you ever, you know, paid for a trafficking victim? And it was all no, no, absolutely not. Absolutely, we never do that. That's disgusting. We never do it. And I'm like, okay, how do you know? How do you know that if you've done what you may have paid for someone, how do you know whether they're now because it exists because as I said, the supply and demand exists. Um, but I would I would hedge a bet that most men wouldn't. I'm saying most, there is going to be an amount, but most men who pay for sex wouldn't pay for it if they knew that this person was was being forced. I know that there is people that would do it, but there is a huge amount of people that pay for sex that would not pay for it if they knew that the person was forced to do it. Um, so when when I sat down with these guys and I really spoke about it and I was like, well, how do you think she would behave if she was being trafficked? Well, she'd try and give signs. She'd try and tell us that something was wrong. And I'm like, absolutely not. No, this wouldn't happen. So I think that it's a really difficult thing to say, well, just don't pay for sex. Nobody should pay for sex. And then it would all be worked out. I think that there, there I mean, we could go down a million different routes. And I know that people that um, work in the anti-trafficking industry are, are quite divided on their opinion on legalizing of prostitute and things. But um my my personal opinion would be that um the women need the women should not be there shouldn't be people in prison for prostitution that's that's my my angle on it there shouldn't be women in jail right at this moment for selling their bodies um whether they went out there and they fully had um it was fully their decision and 
go free will in what they were doing or whether they were being forced to do it. I don't understand why there's people in jail for it. That's that that blows my mind. The people that should be in jail are the people that are profiting from it and the people that are forcing people to do it and the people that are abusing people. 100% agree with that. Um, I, I, I can't think of a reason why a woman should be in jail for selling her body. Yeah, well, I mean, I can firstly attain to the danger that they're in because I remember vividly, I think I wrote about it in my book actually, of finding a dead prostitute in a dumpster in Orlando. So uh, whatever had happened, she'd come to the end of her use for that particular pimp or unless it was a John that had killed her and this young woman was now dead in a dumpster, you know? So if that had been a legal brothel, and again, I understand it's not just like one day you change the law and everything's clean and safe, you know, you'd still be attracting some of the 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 less you know nice people of the world in that that area but there's a lot higher chance that that young lady would be alive today if it was legal versus it was illegal and it parallels to me the prohibition of drugs i mean we've seen what an epic failure that is we've empowered the underworld we've got a crisis at our borders you know so many of the people that have been on from the military have said yeah you know the opium and everything was was basically supplying the money for terrorism that we were out there fighting so by making something illegal you're forcing everyone into the shadows. Now, the sellers, you know, the, the smugglers and the drug sellers, yeah, they should be in prison. But the addict, that little child that found that, like Wendy's path, is did she dream of becoming a criminal? No. She shouldn't be in prison. She should be in a rehab facility and job creation and mental health counseling to try and get her from that dark place back. But prison is the last place these people are going to find, you know, the, the path back from. Yeah. I have a good friend, Sandy Morgan. She, um, runs uh institute for women in justice and she she tells me the story about the i mean the orange county um orange county california have got a really good task force the human trafficking task force who do a lot of work with the police and educating them about but they she had a young girl i believe she was 14 who was being trafficked she was rescued from from the situation she was in. She was taken in, escaped, which is normally the the way from escaped from the rescue. So she went back to her her trafficker, and um, she ended up being killed. And her body was found, and it was recorded as a prostitute. Um, and what that does is it records that she was a um, she died during the act of crime basically so she was she was a criminal when she died which changes how her parents were able to get funding for the funeral there was a lot of things that come into it. this was a 14 year old girl who had been trafficked and I know that that Sandy had to fight to get this girl's name cleared so that she could have the correct burial that she needed and things I I, I, I can't understand why that's a world that we live in she was 14 she was being abused trafficked God knows what her life must have been like, and and for it to be n- not even getting that peace and death of of being the innocent little girl that she was, um, things like child prostitution shouldn't even go together. Those two words shouldn't be be together, um, and I think that yeah, if we had safe space, prostitution. I I I think as much as you can say we can end guns, drugs you're not ending prostitution people are going to pay for sex it's always going to happen it always has happened it's always going to happen um we should be making it safe for women to do for um 
I'm not speaking about the men that are paying for it. I'm not speaking about because they are protected. They they are protected almost by the law. They're protected by um, sexual health, all these various things that they can get. It's the women who are overlooked many times. And now we're we're in a situation where women are now having to fight again for for a million different rights. But that to me, I I I can never. You can't give me a well. If you could, if you could give me a reason why a woman should be in jail for prostitution, then I'll listen. But I can't imagine unless they've hurt someone else or they've done something else. But what that is doing, I don't know. Other than the the, the moral society that we can get into, but. Yeah, but again, it goes back to those two little toddlers. You know, one didn't want to grow up to be a pimp. One didn't want to grow up to be a prostitute. But again, it's trauma. And we don't fix these problems until we put community and mental health and everything back to where it needs to be. And I think underlining your your view on the whole um, stigma around being a prostitute, I watched the documentaries on the Yorkshire Ripper. I think it was at Peter Sutcliffe, I think. And that investigation was a lot slower because the victims were prostitutes, which now looking back is disgusting to have that as a human being that these young women were killed and they were like, yeah, but were they really women? No, they were they were prostitutes. They were hookers. They were whores. So this goes back to that losing the value of a human because now your pigeonhole tells you that they're not worth the same as you because they've gone down this path. Yeah. And I think that a lot of people, have, you know, there's this kind of movement right now. And I see it a lot, especially with the groups that I I know, the kind of, um, I don't even want to say his name, but the Andrew Tate kind of becoming a man, the how to be a man. Um, and a lot of people are following him. And a lot of people are saying, well, yeah, we do need to re- redefine what it is to be a man and bring back the man. You know, real men are are people like Dean, people that, that are out there. Do, but they create real men like my my son in the way that holding doors, being chivalrous, understanding people. You know, my my big brother, he I've seen him out many a time and a girl would have chatted him up and he'll say, you know, let me get you home safely. I'll take your number. If you still want to meet up the next day, that's great. But, you know, because he's seen my experiences. There's a lot of things about being a man, but calling a woman a whore or calling a woman a slut and saying that men shouldn't go with them, men should only go with wholesome girls, you know, that's just, amplifying the whole the whole thing and it's not fixing any problems because if you're still creating little men that think that um these women are disgusting and these women are whores then that's when they become the Sutcliffe's etc where it's okay to kill them or it's okay to rape them or it's okay to beat them or it's okay to take pay for one who we're just going to abuse all night because it doesn't matter because if we get caught she'll go to jail it's fine like until we can get rid of that attitude we're not going to stop that continuous plague i guess absolutely well there isn't really a great segue to talk from prostitution rape to your new book so i'm just gonna pretend there's no segue at all but there is obviously the non-profit side so your book is called how to ask for money and we were talking just before i hit record that side of this podcast is my least favorite thing because i love what i'm doing i love researching i love reading people's stuff i love the conversations but I have to also pay the mortgage. So even from a non, from a uh, you know, a, not a charity, but a but a an organization element, it's something that I struggle with. I struggle with asking. I feel like I'm an imposter. So talk to me about why you know the the journey to 
the point where you wanted to write the book and then uh, tell everyone about what is in the book because I'm fascinated and I'm going to have to pull a lot of the things that you talk about and apply them to my own project here. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I'm sure there is a way to segue prostitution to how to ask <laughs> I'm not a good enough host to do it, though. So. <laughs> but, um, so I started writing the book. I was having a conversation with um, a really good friend, good business person, really strong business person. And we were having a meeting and he had to pop out and he came back and he looked all flustered. That's what's wrong. He said, I don't like this bit. He was completely you know sweaty and everything that's what you got to do he says i've got to ask for money i was like for what he said you know the the, the service he provided i said you provided the service you've got to ask for money and you're nervous he was like yeah and i said okay i said that's sorry he says do you not get scared asking for money and i said no um and he said alan it's the number one fear that people have people hate asking for money and I think that just got me thinking. And I went back and I spoke to Dean and Dean was like, no, you've never, most people hate it, Alana. I hate it. He says, I'll I'll evacuate embassies. I'll do everything, but I hate asking for money. So he said, you know, maybe if you could put it into a book, it might, it might help. So that's how I started writing it. And really when I started writing it, I didn't know how it was going to go or what path I was going to take. But um, I actually learned a lot during the process. Uh, and it's part of what I speak about in the book that you never stop learning. But I took from everything from, my debt collecting days right through to raising money for for charities and took everything that I'd done and just put it into into this book to and, and it really is um if you follow it to the the letter then you're going to win but I'm not saying you have to follow everything so the formula that I have in the in the middle of the book the um the meat of the book is really about maps which is um mindset accountability planning and strategy and really if you if you follow through each one of them then you've got a really solid solid ask but even if you just took a little bit of each of each part it will get better every time so I, I start with with mindset is about if you're going in to ask for money you need to be able to be in the right position in the right mind frame so I'll really go deep into it I don't it's not just let's be in the right mindset we talk about um you know, meditation, we talk about eating well, we talk about health and fitness, screen time, sun, sleep, all these different things that goes quite deep into each one. But the more prepared you are in your mindset and the more um, strong you are in your mindset for going in to ask for money, the better. Um, accountability section is what we talked about earlier, that the, the buck stops here. There's a lot of times that you see people maybe on like shark's tank or something and they might not be fully prepared and they'll blame someone else or somebody else will be but at the end of the day it should all stop with you if you're not doing it right um it's all down to you so if you're using the wrong people or if you're um if you're not prepared in any way then make sure make yourself accountable just be accountable and it it, it goes into how to improve that um and then the planning section really that takes on to to everything that I've ever done is time spent in this phase and the planning phase isn't wasted you know the more planning the more prepared you are the more information you have um really knowing about who you're asking um why you're asking all the details that you can go into the more you have there the better and then how you're going to pull all that together for the strategy you know making sure you've got a really solid strategy before you just walk in and kind of verbal diarrhea what you're what you're trying to trying to ask for so um 
I take those steps into every time I'm asking for money and that that goes with, with everything but it all, the book also goes into you know why we have fear um how we can control our fear how we can develop our fears um and how we can use our fears as our benefits as well we all have them and we can just flip how we how we think about them um how to motivate people I guess is is a big part of the book it's about talking about um what motivates you but also what motivates other people and how you can understand that um I talk about how not to ask for money which is also a big part and then I talk about the the aftermath because that's probably the biggest thing that everybody forgets once you get the money how do you treat the donor afterwards so I go quite deep into that about what we should do and how we should retain that donor and how we should value them etc so yeah so I think it's interesting when you come from a service, one of the service industry, you know, um, a selfless service profession. So you're in the military, police, fire, etc., and then you enter into another space where either it's a nonprofit or like me, it's I didn't go down the nonprofit route really more because it's so bloody expensive and complicated. It was more liberating and free to just do an LLC and be my own boss and and basically almost like the social business model, but. There are firefighters that do my job for free, you know, and I would do it for free. I adore that job. So you're not asking for something in return up until this point. So talk to me about that fear, especially from a lot of people that are listening now. They end up getting into a different space, um, going from I will show up if you just three push three numbers on a telephone to, you know, presenting in someone and justifying in your own mind that it's okay to ask for money because it is going to another altruistic project. So especially for people like you guys, I'll just take my husband as an example. He, his job is literally preserving life, you know, everything that he does. So when he was in the military, when you're firefighter, paramedic, you're saving lives. That's what you're doing. So the value of what you do is life. And is there anything more valuable in the world than, than than that? So how do you then put an actual price tag to it? Um, and then if we take like a circumstance that we've been in often would be the phone call comes in, this person's in danger, they need your help, Dean, we need you there right now. Um, so Dean's out the door within an hour and away off to to rescue this person who's who's in danger. Um for me it's invoice out first paid then he'll go out the door now that sounds a bit that ice cream part of me is coming out again but the way that I would say it is what is what is the value of Dean like if, if Dean doesn't come back from this trip what does that affect our family how does that work who else is going to be able to do this job how much is what he's doing worth and what is the value to them let's just say if he's rescuing a CEO who's been kidnapped um in a minefield in Mexico um, if this CEO dies or gets killed what how effect does that have on his family what effect does it have on his business the investors the people that, that would follow to rescue this person how much is is that going to benefit all this this thing and if you go in and, and save this person's life to then put the value on that on the aftermath is very difficult to do and then often it's overlooked. So I have worked with security professionals that have maybe got 10, 20 outstanding invoices that have maybe never even sent, um, that have maybe been sent that have never been paid because once the job's done, the value kind of disappears a little bit then because, well, we're safe, we're happy. 
you know, security is something that that rarely gets thought about until a person really needs it, and then they'll maybe spend a lot of money on it. So, um, it's important that you understand your own value, and then the value of what it is that you do. Set that value and don't waver. You know, there's no such thing as mates rates or a cheaper deal or discounts if this is what your value is you need to be able to be strong enough to put that that value on it and saying this is what I'm worth this is why I'm worth it do you want it um and if the person doesn't then they don't recognize your value then that's maybe they're maybe not right for you but if it's a service that they need that you can offer and you put the right value on it if you if you undervalue that then they'll they'll undervalue who you are as well so I talk quite a bit about knowing your value and knowing your worth um, and not wavering from it. I'm not a fan of mates rates or anything like that because you you pay for mates rates, you're going to get that kind of service. So, Yeah, well, that's really good to hear because I think you add, factor in the meekness that I think a lot of us have because, again, we're serving. So that kind of self-value goes down a little bit and then add in some imposter syndrome, this thing that I'm doing now, you know, is it really that good? And you know, they don't know the chaos is in my mind. It, it does kind of tend to to make you question that value that you're talking about. And especially when you were in uniform doing a thing and this paycheck said this many figures and now you've written a book, you got a podcast, you're a carpenter, whatever you've transitioned to. It is a, a you know, it's such a shift, just the same way that Dean didn't know about council tax and all that. You know, our profession is like, well, how do I value myself? I just sat on a fire engine for 14 years and and showed up so it's been something that i've struggled to navigate i heard something the other day um imposters don't get imposter syndrome that was something that i thought was really profound because it is true that the people who are out there doing it you know you sat in a um in your brigade or whatever they call it here for how many years but how many of them then went out and started their own business? How many of them have gone out and started their own podcast and done their own things? So to say that you're you, you're no different to the rest of them um, is something that Dean used to say all the time. Like everybody's good, everybody's good at it. Yeah, but not everybody's going to to Libya and, and evacuating embassies, and not everybody's flying across to Yemen and doing. You were all in the same position at one point, but there's something that sets you aside from the rest of them, and it's taking you to this next level. Um, so you have to appreciate that the greatest things about people like like you and Dean is is that humility side of it that you think, well, you know, I'm no different than the rest. But when you really look inside yourself, you'll see that, yeah, I am. Yeah, I've come out of that place in, in England. Yeah, I've moved, I've done these things, I've moved up. I've, you know, is everybody that worked in England managed to transition to the US to be able to do their thing? Um, just just look at all those little differences that you've had from other people when you are doubting yourself and then put that value up a bit more. Beautiful. Well, I'm sure everyone else gained from that, but you can tell that was a very personal question as well. So I definitely gained from that. So thank you. All right. So your latest book is How to Ask for Money. Your biography is She Who Dares. Um, again, another edit after me screwing up the first time. Um, and then you have some children's books as well. So where can people find you online and then where can they find the books? Yeah, so um, everything for me is Alana Stott, alanastott.com, Alana Stott across Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, etc. Um, How to Ask for Money is out today. It's the 23rd of May today, so that comes out today. Um, she Who Dares is out on the 31st of July. Um, 
the kids' books are all out throughout this year, so Live Your Own Way is already out. Uh, me and my friends plays August and Who to Help Today is the end of the year. So again, all Amazon or anywhere that you get your books. Um, but yeah, How to Ask for Money, I'm, I'm, I'm excited for that today. Let's see how that goes. And um, She Who Dares, yeah, that'll be a different a different set. So I'm, 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 I'm keen to see how it all goes, but excited, yeah. Beautiful. Well, I'm excited. Like I said, I've already dived into the biography. I will definitely be diving into how to ask for money for that very reason. Um, I have I a couple. Totally plug, I should totally plug my husband's book as well. Let's Relentless. do it. Do it. Yeah. Throw it in there. <laughs> yeah, Dean's book is Relentless. The, the The cool thing about Relentless and She Who Dares is it tells the same story. Have you read both books? Uh, yes, I have now. Yeah, Relentless. I think the the audio book, and then you were kind enough to send me the copies of the uh, the paper books of the current ones. So I think my husband's just read it. Dean's just read She Who Dares. And um, it's actually given us a bit of a new lease of life on our our relationship as well, because I think a lot of the stuff that was in there, although he knows the story from his own mind, he didn't know it from, from my mind necessarily. So it's really interesting. Relentless and She Who Dares are the same story, but from two different perspectives. And I think I would say everybody should write a book and give it to their other halves at least, because it's definitely opened up both our eyes to our own kind of um views of what's what's happened over the past few years it's really interesting yeah i think everyone should write a book full stop i just went to portugal there to visit my family and sat with my brother and uh he started in our conversation started choking up and he said i never realized the kind of things you saw as a firefighter and it wasn't supposed to be some glorifying bio it's actually just a chapter each chapter is a little story of my life and then it goes into mental health sleep deprivation nutrition you know it's a takeaway from each one but you forget as you said everyone around you is doing the same thing you forget that the rest of the world has no idea what you do and even your partner through two different eyes the same story it's an interesting kind of parallel journey but there are some as i can imagine there are some areas where you must have said oh i didn't realize you felt that way about that thing yeah yeah completely yeah yeah we should everybody should write their own book that's for sure so i've got a few closing questions but i know we've already pushed past the two hour mark are you have do you have time for a few of those yeah no, i'm good yeah brilliant okay so we talked about your book and dean's book are there any other books that you love to recommend it can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated um yeah so i love books so um and i i'm, I'm more of a non-fiction so fiction wise I'd, I'd be really terrible at recommending um i'm currently reading em emily frizella's book um which is relationships first and it's it's, it's really interesting to see how again um m myself and dean have started a podcast called behind the scene which talks about uh the person that the world sees and the person behind the scenes that we don't necessarily see so um andy frizella is a name that a lot of people will know owner of first form emily's his wife um so it's really interesting to read her story um kelsey who you've had on the podcast uh she's got brass and unity coming out in july i've luckily luckily enough to have, have read her story which is great um definitely worth a read um one of one of my favorite books actually is a book that's not very popular but it's called time cleanse the time cleanse but yeah, it's by a guy called Stephen Griffith, um, The Time Cleanse. And it's it's really about, you know, the whole, I've not got time for this. Um, it kind of breaks down that 
well, where are you spending your time? What are you doing? And there's an exercise during the book where you literally just write down everything you do in a day, whether it's having a shower, anything that you write down exactly what you're doing. And then you work out how many hours you're spending doing all these different things and how you can break down your your week. And it really it helped me with things like screen time, all these different things. For So when you say, I've not got time for this, it it changes your perspective on that. So it's a really good book. Beautiful. Yeah, especially the screen time. I've heard you talking about that on the other podcast as well. And even though that can be a lot of business related stuff too, it's it's amazing. Like I go on a, a cruise with my wife occasionally because we live in Florida. So it's very cheap and very easy. And, you know, we won't pay for the Wi-Fi packages and we'll leave the phone. And then you're like, oh, shit, that's how how little time I use my phone when, you know, when I'm here forced not to use it. So, uh, so yeah, there's definitely, I think most of us put a hand on our heart and say there's probably some time available where we were staring at that little rectangle. Yeah. And it, and there's some, I mean, I don't know the, the ins and outs of it all, but I, I know like last night when I went to bed, I just quickly checked everything. And before I switched off, I thought I'll quickly check Twitter. And I remember looking at the clock and it was like 2202. And it was 2233 when I looked back at the clock and I was like, oh shit, I've just been sitting for 30 minutes on Twitter it's it's easy done it's terrible but it's easily done absolutely well speaking of that what about films and documentaries that you love um oh anything like documentaries we probably watch them all me and dean watch probably every documentary that that comes out we love it especially if it's um the kind of conspiracy style ones we love to have a little chat about about them in the background um our family is anything that gives us horror films are, are, are huge in this house. Um, thrillers. We, we, we do enjoy um, kind of government 24 style movies, rabbit hole and things like that. But the problem with me and Dean is we just criticize it the whole way through. So um, we, we, we try to try to watch them without too much criticism, but it's not easy. Um the terminal list. I missed out Jack Carr, who's a friend of ours. He Jack Carr actually endorsed She Who Dares, so he's given a, a nice review for that. Um, the terminal list is quite a good show that was that was about his books. If you haven't watched it, watch. Yeah, I just had Jack on about two weeks ago because he he came on when um, I think it was his third book was about to come out. And then we, we kind of circled around again the other day. But uh, yeah, I thought the Terminalist was amazing. Chris Pratt was phenomenal in that role. Yeah, yeah, really good. No, Jack is lovely. I think he's probably one of the nicest guys I've ever come across. He's just such a sweet gentleman. Um, I don't know if you're allowed to call Seals sweet, but I'm calling him sweet. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, then speaking of amazing people, is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Wow. You've, you've, you've already had most of them on. That's the problem. Um, who have we had? You've had Kelsey. You've had Dean. Um, have you had Clint on, Clint Emerson? Uh, Clint has been on. I actually need to get him back on again. But yes, he's been on as well. Okay. Uh... Then, but Ginge Johnson sounds like he should, he'd be a good person. Ginge is amazing. The only problem with Ginge is he's a little bit difficult to understand. Um, he he lives in Hereford. He's probably now in his 70s. Um, but he would be amazing. If you got him on, he would be utterly amazing. But have you had Bedros on? Bedros Killian? I have. Actually, I got to go to California. I used to live in, in Huntington Beach. 
and I got to go back um, and sit with Bedros in his studio, actually, at his HQ about, what was it, about eight months ago now, I think. Great conversation. Yeah, really cool guy. Um, you've kind of put me on the spot now. <laughs> well, it's hard with, with 800 people. It's like, you know, trying to find someone that hasn't been on is a, is a good thing. It's a great thing. But uh, yeah, sometimes it's like, okay, I've just given you five, James, and I've all been on. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop now. <laughs> <laughs> I'll think of someone. I'm going to get in touch with you and I'm going to find somebody who you should have on. Perfect. All right. Well, then the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you online. What do you do to decompress? You know, just spending time with the family, really. Like that's whenever I'm not working and with the family, that's really my my happy time. Me and Dean have a ritual that every Sunday morning we just sit down and just have a cup of tea and just talk about the week that's gone, the week ahead um and that's our happy time really but personally on my own it's just reading a book that's that's what I'll do in my little hidey hole somewhere but with three kids and Dean and four businesses it's decompression time's not, not happening. <laughs> all right well then you mentioned about finding the books on Amazon where else online can people find you as far as whether websites or social media yeah so alanastot.com Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, all Lana Stott. Um, I, I might be on TikTok, but if I am, it's definitely not me that set it up. <laughs> I've got an account as well. I did one video. I'm like, no, I just can't do it. And that was it. <laughs> I stopped. <laughs> All right. Well, I just want to say thank you so much. It's been such an incredible conversation. I think one of the most powerful things about the earlier years is that really does define, not not define it, we're not shackled to it, but it really does shed so much light onto our highs, our lows, and also, you know, the growth from it. But to have such a kind of courageous, vulnerable conversation on top of all the amazing tools that you brought to us, and I will be reading How to Ask for Money. Um, I want to thank you so, so much for being so generous with your time today. Thank you, James. Thank you so much.